Hey guys, welcome to episode 208 of Talking Fanfic. Glad to have you with me today. I hope you guys are all doing well after the holidays. Um, I'm excited for this episode today. I haven't done an interview for a little while, and this one was a really good one. This is Muse Away. Um, we talk about her work in Smallville, in Supernatural, and in Star Trek, specifically the 2009 reboots, which was a fandom that really got me involved in community and showed me what a fandom community could look like nine years before I would just dive headfirst into the Cobra Kai fandom. So that was really nice to just connect with her and talk about our memories of that fandom. So I think you're going to love it. Um, but I just wanted to say um, one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to Muse is her community organizing. She is heavily involved in a kind of Twitter and Discord writers community called FICWIP, hashtag F-I-C-W-I-P. And they are a multi-fandom writers community, but she also puts on all kinds of challenges. She has been doing fandom organizing for years and years. Back in the Smallville fandom, she was an archivist. Um, she'll talk about that, but she, she's just somebody I viewed as a weaver of fandom community. I think that's um, something that the Fanfic Maverick and I have talked about, which is when we talk to older writers, they often exhibit kind of a nostalgia for old school fandom. And what they talk about a lot is that old school fandom had really deeply woven social communities and that that's missing a little bit these days, um, which I think you can find community anywhere you go. And I don't know, you know, it's hard for me to say how much of that is truly lost or how much of that is nostalgia. Um, but Muse is one of those people that is connecting people in fan fiction and community. Um, I was thinking about this. There's an author that uh, he's a columnist for the New York Times called David Brooks. And David Brooks talks um, he talks about all kinds of things. His main preoccupation is kind of the ripping apart of the, you know, specifically in the U.S., but this probably applies to other countries, of the two kind of p political poles that we have. Um, and just trying to find common ground across the ends of that spectrum. And he started a nonprofit called Weave. Um, and their, their kind of mission, let me just pull up the website real quick. I have this little Q and I pulled up here and that here's what he says about this social fabric project. It's clear that we have a crisis of connection in this country. I do a lot of reporting across the country and see firsthand the loneliness and division. So many people feel unseen and misunderstood. Blacks feel that whites don't understand their daily experience. Democrats and Republicans glare at each other in angry incomprehension. There are teenagers in the basements across the country who feel that no one knows them well. There are seniors wondering what happened to the warm bonds they remember from the old days in their neighborhood. Our national problems are really relational problems. I realized that the solution wouldn't come from Washington, D.C. It had to happen in our neighborhoods. So he basically talks about sending people into communities and finding the people that are just really good at building community and deepening relationships. So those are people who, he says, sometimes they run a coffee shop where everybody feels at home. 
Sometimes they're just the person on the block who invites everybody over for barbecue. So anyway, in a fan fiction context, that just means thinking about prioritizing your love for what you do. Um, the fandom that brought you to fan fiction and fan art in the first place. Putting those loves of community over yourself and your ego. Putting kinship and connection over ship wars, over competition, over kudos. It's about sharing your, your time, your talent, and your treasure. And that's what somebody like Muse is doing, you know? Remembering that we do this for free and we do it because we love the material that we work with and we love that other people and other writers are out there writing incredible fan fiction that we can read that transports us and takes us to other worlds and brings us so much joy. So those are the type of people that um, fandom needs. So anyway, it's super exciting. I do have a couple of bulletin items to talk about um, in the Cobra Kai Karate Kid fandom, the Karate Club zine is now available for pre-order. So go check that out. I'm going to get a physical copy, but you can get a digital copy. You can get uh, merchandise that those guys have organized and put together. I wasn't involved in the karate club zine, but it was incredible to watch from the outside as those guys promoted the zine, organized the zine, and they've got a beautiful website um, now to sell it. And uh, sell is in... um, it is a charity zine, so the any profits will go to charity, so they're not making any money. So it's it's pretty cool what they've done there. Interestingly, in this interview, Muse and I actually mentioned the the collect zine, and just this past week, some some things have really gained momentum, and this is actually super exciting. So in the interview, we recorded a, a couple weeks back before this, but the the collect scene was kind of in an odd place where. It was in Limbo. The mod, who was great, who put everything together to get it started, just couldn't continue. So Muse and I actually got together. We picked things back up. We are reorganizing, reopening for applications. So the 2020 collection is now called Legends. So it's going to be, I'm sorry, I've been calling it 2020. That was the 2021 collection. Um, we are reorganizing it under a new title called Legends. And that's going to be a 2022 release, probably spring. So applications for writers and fan artists are open right now. So we would love to have some new contributors, um, anybody, you know, new people to the fandom. But we would love to get some like Golden Age Clark Lex writers from back in the day. So that would be a dream. Um, And we also don't have a cover artist right now. So we'll be taking... Um, just put in the notes for the uh, the legend application that you're interested in applying for the uh, cover art for the zine. We're going to do for sure a digital release and hopefully a physical one after that. So Legends, a 2022 collect scene, super exciting. And uh, also Muse does mention in the interview that she is looking to get in contact with any of the old school folks from the Smallville fandom who are involved with the Clark Lex FicFest, the CLFF or Clexfest uh, organizers, anyone that could give her permission to archive those works on AO3, because you have to have, um, I guess you have to have permission from some of those folks in order to do that. So if you know anyone that was involved in those early rounds of Clexfest, or any information about that, you can hit me up. You can hit Muse up. We've got her contact info in the show notes. So that would be awesome because those port, what, what do you call that? Porting over 
fit collections from old archives into AO3 is super important because those works get lost if they're not preserved. So Muse is one of those people that wants to make that preservation project happen. Okay, I think I think that's it. I hope that intro wasn't too long or lectury. I always just love encouraging people to get involved with your fandom community, get involved with challenges, you know, find somebody like Muse who is a freaking pro and put on a zine. Like we're really excited about that. Um, but just little stuff like reading, you know, if you're like bumping your head against a wall in your whip, um, go read someone else's fic and make a nice comment. If someone makes a nice comment on your fic, reply, you know, that's something that I try to be good at, but I'm not always good at. And oftentimes my replies are like months later. But anyway, I think that's important. It just helps build friendships, build community, you know, reminds people out there in the world in front of their computer that there are other fans just like them in front of their computers across the world. So part of that gift economy of fan fiction that we talk about in this interview. So I will stop talking, enjoy the interview with Muse, and happy holidays. Welcome to Talkin' Fanfic, everybody. Very excited to have a guest that uh, I've been reading her stuff for a long time, and I've only recently gotten to talk to her a little bit, so uh, you have probably read her stuff. Muse away, welcome to the show. Thank you! Well, it's so good to have you here. Um, I think we have a lot in common as far as fandom overlap, although you've been in some (laughs) fandoms that I haven't been in, but I think we'll have a ton to talk about today. But I always like to get started with just your early kind of writing memories, how you got started either reading or writing as a kid, and then how that eventually got you to fan fiction. Oh, sure. Um, my earliest uh, writing memory, I was probably no more than seven or eight. Uh, my dad came home from um, a birding trip, and he brought us the stuff from the hotel room. So he had brought like the little lotion bottles and he had brought back the notebook and the pen from this hotel. And I was, I I took that to my room and I wrote what at that time, what I felt was very deep poetry. (laughs) And I mean, realistically, it was terrible. Um, I never written poetry before, but I just decided that's what this notebook needed to be about. Um, And so I wrote like stuff about my sisters, but I wrote this one that I can still remember the poem Um, And it was the image, I don't know where I came up with this, but it was the image of a ghost that was trapped in a bottle and he was trying to climb up the neck of the bottle with his hands to escape. And I have no idea where I came up with that. But that's like the first thing that I I have a a memory of actually putting down on paper was this bizarre poem about a ghost. So I guess it's fitting that like years later I would end up in supernatural fandom. (laughs) But um, I so I started out, I was an original fiction writer for years and years. I wrote all through grade school. Um, I remember writing like short horror stories for my class and like trying to freak them out uh, and then got into high school and didn't do quite so much in high school because we didn't really have a focus on uh, writing fiction. We wrote uh, more like essays um, and your, your typical schoolwork. But when I got to university, they, we had a creative writing um, courses that you could take. Uh, and I applied, like, fingers crossed, hoping I could get in. And they were very kind. They let me into the program. So I did um, some really intense and excellent creative writing uh, work uh, while I was at uh, 
university. And it was while I was at school that I found fandom totally by accident. I was Googling. Well, actually, it was not Google. Google didn't exist yet. I was on <laughs> uh, uh, there was a wonderful uh, search engine made by Carnegie Mellon, and I'm going to totally blank on the name of it, uh, but I was on that and accidentally stumbled upon a Harry Ron fic from the Harry Potter fandom and read it having no idea what I had gotten myself into. <laughs> and I was like, what is this and how can I get more of this? And so that was how I found uh, in one day uh, fandom slash fic and the Harry Potter fandom, which was my first. And so that's how I got in when I was 19. Oh, man, that's awesome that like... I feel like it took me a while to get to Slash. Uh, okay. I think the first one, I found some like Star Wars, uh, the of the reboot Star with the prequels fan fiction okay. somehow. And then I found fanfic.net. And I think my first big fandom was Star Trek 2009, which we'll talk about nice. later in the interview. Um, <laughs> and I think that was my, I think KS was my first encounter with Slash. I believe, or it, yeah, it was the first one I really got into. So we're going to have tons to talk about with that. Um, <laughs> but I remember like, I think the first time I saw a slash ship was probably like a Qui-Gon Obi-Wan Star Wars. I remember thinking how strange yeah. that was. Granted, there's like an age difference. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I'll never be into that. What? And then <laughs> just slowly slid. So it's funny that you got it like one day you're there. Um, was that on fanfic.net or do you remember... That was, no, it was a private archive site. Um, there, fanfiction.net was around then. This was in 2001, to put this into context. Um, so uh, fanfiction.net was around, but it, all of the archives, we didn't really have a, it was sort of the de facto central archive, but at that time there was never a guarantee that an archive wouldn't wipe your works out overnight. So it was common practice at that time to post your work to multiple places, including a private website, typically your live journal, and then you might have it on fanfiction.net or Smallville fandom, we had our own archive, the Smallville slash archive. Yeah. So this was a writer's personal website that I had stumbled on by searching. I was looking at, I was trying to find a detail about one of the books and whoops. And <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I got more than I asked for, but it was good. Did you slide into reading and writing fairly quickly after that? Or did it take you a few years of like being in the Harry Potter fandom and lurking? No, oh no, I didn't look at all. I, I, I was fearless at that age because I was I was 19 years old. I was very, very lonely. I was a second semester freshman in college, uh, really introverted. And I think I found that story in January 2001. And within, I don't know, a matter of weeks, I think I'd written my first. I didn't actually start writing Slash right away. I, I was actually a really big fan of the Hermione Draco ship. It hits a lot of my good buttons. I know like still a lot of shippers and it's like, yes, it was yes. such a good ship. Um, and it really was. It was a great shift. So my first thing that I ever wrote, I, I came home from class on like a Thursday and like pulled an all nighter and wrote this just abysmal, like 10,000 word story. But it took off overnight. I went to bed. I woke up and I had all of these friends and I was like, this is neat because um, it was just before fanfiction.net turned over at such a rate that things got lost on the new works page. So you could sit on the new works page for like a hot day, whereas I, I don't think it works that way anymore. It's got to be like AO3 mm -hmm. anyway. Um, and I made all of these friends like overnight and I'm still in touch with a couple of people that I knew from Harry Potter back then. So I've known them for like 20 years, which is pretty cool. That's hard to say like in real life, but you can do it in fandom. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was also uh, intradermine because it does. It hits yeah. so many buttons. It's like sort of the snarky bad boy. Both characters are highly intelligent, so there's always like banter mm-hmm. and snark yeah. and um, it's just like every great rom-com that you watch yes. is like <laughs> – tapping into that that's awesome so if that's around 2001 smallville starring at that time was that your second big fandom or smallville was big fandom yeah i had an unfortunate um if you know uh, harry potter fandom's history there was an unfortunate rift that happened um very popular author i will not go into the details for people who do not like this but a very popular author had an issue with fanfiction.net and it caused a, a massive rift within the fandom and uh, overnight people that you were friends with were no longer your friends depending on the stance you took with regards to what had happened. And uh, so the Harry Potter fandom very quickly became inhospitable and I backed out of it um, and felt very, very lost. Didn't really know where to go next from that. So I was kind of bouncing between um, kind of like, as I'm doing right now, I'm not really like dead into any particular fandom, but I felt like very lost and I'd lost my friends and I was very sad. And by this point I was a sophomore in college, which I remember only because of how I got into Smallville. I was not watching it because DC's never really been my thing. I was much more of a Marvel person. And my roommate watched Smallville and I'd known her for years. And she was watching the show and I was like looking at my computer doing something else. And she suddenly is yelling at the TV for the characters to make out. And I, of course, turn to look and see what she's talking about. And it's Clark and Lex on screen. This was someone who did not know fandom, had no idea what shipping was. She was pure general audience, but she was shipping them. And I was like, I have to clearly watch this show. And so I started watching Smallville immediately. I think it was must have been like on the first season or, or very early, first or second season. We were early into Smallville. And I was like, I dived right in and I got into it. And um, so, yeah, that was my second fandom. And I stayed in that fandom until I took my fandom hiatus uh, a few years later, which is probably around like 2000 five or six is kind of when I, I petered out the, during my first run. But that was historically just the best fandom I was ever in. Smallville was such a lovely, welcoming, creative, intelligent, and nice fandom. I don't ever remember. I'm sure we would fight today with Twitter, but we didn't fight. It was just such a good time. Man, um, so I actually <laughs> missed the boat on being in that fandom at the and the golden age of the run of the show um as i just like accidentally slipped into reading um smallville thick and clark lex earlier this year or it was like early 2020 or whatever and i was just blown away by the quality of the fic and by these authors back then um uh how yep. prolific they were i think it is shockingly, considering how many years it's been since it's off the air. There are still a lot of people churning out works for that fandom. Yeah, it's like definitely a slower pace and the the community is not there anymore. Like there's kudos and comments are, are pretty rare. Um, but you're still seeing new fix. Um, most days there's like one or two mm-hmm. new fix. But the stuff that was happening back in 2001, 2002, 2003 was like, unbelievable in my and you know part of that is like you're in a new fandom you're so excited about the show like you've got stars in your eyes but like i always like name off like rivka t separus x parrot like you um there's a bunch of people i'm definitely dolomir um dolomir was a lovely friend i adored her i don't know if she's still around i miss her i know i don't i haven't looked in to see if she's on tumblr or anything but um but i saw that you made i think a note on your fic play forgiveness where you mentioned. Yeah, I used, um, she had written a 
I want to say it was called the Lazarus Gap. She'd done yes. a story. I want to say it was Lex had amnesia. It's one of my favorite tropes. But anyway, she had chosen um, Clark's middle name in that. And I used that in mine because there was a discrepancy about what his middle name actually is. So I, I did that nod to her. I haven't talked with her since like 2006. I feel bad. I fell out of touch with so many people, but I pulled out a fandom entirely. So it's completely on me that I did that. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's cool to to find because I got to interview X Parrot and Rivka T, and they talked a little bit about bit about the fandom too and yeah it's neat to hear them talk about the smallville fandom and both of them kind of mentioned the kind of the remarkable yeah atmosphere and the fic back then and i'm like ah oh, i miss the golden age but it's still fun that to find you guys and say hey do you remember smallville and everyone's just like yes i loved it it was, so good. It, was it was a neat time because it wasn't like it is today if you wanted to experiment with something you could there just wasn't the feeling that you were going to get you know sent hate mail if you wanted to experiment with point of view or switch your ship up or there just wasn't any of that um we had allegiances to our ships but it, it wasn't quite like today's atmosphere where you're accused of betraying your ship if you you know stray from it because you want to write I don't know, Luther Sest or something, which was a thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, ha I, ha I have seen that. Um, I, I never experimented with it, but it it was a thing. You know, John Glover is so charming. It's like, yes, <laughs> you can't blame him. Um, were you guys mostly socializing on LiveJournal back then? Or where was like the community? Yeah, our hub. Um, Harry Potter fandom was uh, Yahoo Groups and LiveJournal. But my Smallville experience almost entirely centered around uh, live journal. We had, um, uh, there were communities, um, uh, both for like show discussion. There were communities for specific ships. There was a really super active travel community that actually continued to operate until just a couple of years ago. They really, I'm, it was so impressive. They kept that going. Um, but yeah, it kind of centered around and then, you know, your personal blog, you'd make a post and it was very much like, um, you know, how Twitter and Tumblr work today where your friends would jump in your comment section and you'd have all of these great discussions. So it wasn't real time um, the way that we could do today with Discord. Um, but honestly, that's probably why Smallville fandom was so nice. If if Smallville had aired at a time when Twitter, Tumblr and the modern social media um, were up, I think the fandom would be on fire and we just <laughs> happened to miss social media <laughs> i think so because like the way that show is set up is that you have um kind of the the show itself how it's written is sort of pushing you to root for uh clark and lana and that's uh, when i was i watched it back then like because i was i would have been in like kind of middle school age in 2001 okay. and that's part of that show's nostalgia to me in seasons one and two is like the longing looks between Clark and Lana, but I like Lex is such a vivid, like he was clearly the most um, charismatic, interesting character. I loved Michael's Lex. <laughs> Unreal, that guy. It's so funny because I watch his podcast uh, now, Inside of You, where he just like interviews celebrities. And obviously, if you've ever seen that or any kind of convention, he's so fucking goofy. Like he's. I bet. <laughs> he's a total like weirdo goofball comedian. Nothing like. <laughs> Lex Luthor, like he's not mysterious. I mean, he is still like sexy, but like in a cute way, but he's not like yeah. darkly like dangerous. And <laughs> so the fact that he was able to pull that off is uh, a testament to his acting skills. Um, but yeah, I feel like the show had like Lex Lana was a big thing. And then obviously, like 
your friend, like many other people, saw the chemistry between Clark and Lex and their longing mm-hmm. looks. And then you had like the Clark Chloe shippers and you had Lois coming in and then you get those guys. So it's got a lot of like, yeah, just typical teenage drama, I guess. And I feel like that would have mm-hmm. probably made for some contentious discussions. I think so. And I think I think Clex would definitely have been Clex shippers would have would be chased off the Internet today. Um, because when the show started, if I'm remembering, Clark is supposed to be about 15 years old mm-hmm. and Lex was in his 20s. At the time, they were both act, the actors were both older than I was at the time I was watching. So it never occurred to me that I was watching, you know, a 15 year old Michael, I think, was already in his 30s. And Tom was, I want to say, mid to late 20s. And I was like little. So they were both older than me and it never occurred to me. But today, in today's fandom climate, I'm pretty sure that ship would have been demonized the way that, you know, Sheath was from Voltron and. Oh, yeah. People love to jump on that. And it's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, for so many reasons. I mean, I could argue back and we we don't need to dig into that. But it is funny that the seat like it's just so such a typical early 2000s show when you've got a 24 year old or whatever playing a 14 year old. He's got his little backpack on and you're like, oh, my God. High schooler. Sure. Sure. WB. Tom Welling is like, you know, six, four, like 180 pounds. You're like, Jesus, why isn't he in the football team? Because his dad wouldn't let him. I know. Oh, my gosh. really sad for Clark, but. Did you watch? Um, I know it seemed like a lot of Clark Lex shippers watched through maybe season like four or five and then by that time supernatural was starting up and i feel like a ton of people just the same network they just jumped right into supernatural but is that about where you watched did you watch past that at all i watched about through season four um the last episodes i have really strong memories of watching were um and i can't remember which season they were in um were shattered in asylum are the last two that really burned themselves into my memories they may have been season three but i gave up they are three. Okay. I gave up after the fourth season on the show because I knew where it was going. You knew that the show was inevitably about the breakup of this amazing relationship, which they had spent these seasons, and I didn't want to watch it. Um, and then Jensen Eccles got stolen by this new show, Supernatural, and I was mad. I'm like, I'm not going to watch a show about two brothers that are haunting monsters. Screw that. So I refused to watch it and did not watch Supernatural until they were on their eighth, ten, no, tenth season. I got in oh, on season shit. 10. I, I boycotted. I was like, I'm not watching that crap. I don't. I was so mad at them because how dare you steal? Was it Jason Teague? How dare <laughs> yes. you steal Jason Teague from me? Put him on another television program. <laughs> I was mad. That's so funny. That character was so silly too. In retrospect, it's like he's a high but school he was coach. So, hot. so <laughs> I talk about this like I feel like I bring this up on every episode of this podcast. Like how? Like my sister and I just did a podcast where we just caught, caught up on fandom stuff. And like, I listened to that one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. That's my sister. And she's, uh, she's seen more Supernatural than I have. And she's like the biggest Jensen Eccles fan. I mean, who isn't? But we just, we can't get over how good looking he is. Like, ridiculously good looking. I I got to see him in person. I went to one convention and he was just beautiful in person. He's just truly one of the most attractive people I think I've ever seen. Smaller than I expected. He's not as bulky as Dean. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. With that jacket, I feel like adds a little. And Jared is super tall. He's the same height as my ex, but I was just like, "Holy, you are tall." He's a big guy, and he like really after season two in Supernatural, like Sammy. I think they do his bangs just like they did with Tom, you know, as Clark. Like they do the bangs to like try to make them younger, and then all of a sudden season three, he's like, 
a man among men and he's like huge and his like hair is pushed back and you're like oh my god what happened to sam <laughs> um but anyway i figured kind of like digging in so that's a good i think i think overview i guess your early fandom day so you got into like supernatural and you wrote you were super prolific like you wrote a ton of stuff i didn't can't remember how many yeah most of them the majority aren't on only the big stuff made ao3 so there were like a good like hundred drabble and like shorter things that were just tumblr things i wrote a ridiculous amount for supernatural with smallville and supernatural did you feel like that really developed you like as a writer Uh, because that would have covered a few years Yes and no. Um, uh, fandom was more like a fun sandbox because I was uh, my my brain was kind of always in original fiction land. And I used to write like novels and lots of short stories. And fandom was kind of this way to, you know, you could write and immediately share it with people. And it wasn't it didn't feel so isolating and lonely as original fiction, which can feel awful because you're the only person who knows your characters. You you can't brainstorm with someone about what your character would do because they don't know them. They can't have that conversation. But you can talk about that in fandom. I could say to you, hey, I'm writing this thing about Lex. And do you think he would do you know this action? Um, and so I, I got addicted to the the kind of the community uh, in fandom. And I played a lot in fandom. I definitely experimented with style and um, Smallville particularly was a highly experimental fandom for me because I was in college and I didn't care. I was nobody in that fandom. Um, and so it gave you a freedom that you do not have once people have expectations of you, which is really frightening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, they definitely all, those fandoms all contributed to that first million words you're supposed to throw out before you write something that's worth reading. So, yeah. That's cool. Well, it was tough picking out works to discuss because you've been so prolific and you've written so much and you've written so many great things. Um, but for Smallville, I picked out uh, Play Forgiveness. Is that your most recent Clex fic? No, I think um, I think the one where they my post-asylum fic, I want to say, was written the following year. But Play Forgiveness and that one, which the name is escaping me though they are from like 2013 2014 and they they are the two of them together are the only ones i've written since i returned to fandom as an adult <laughs> and actually well, i want to dig into the fig with you but was there a certain um reason or feeling that got you back into fandom after you sort of took a hiatus oh yeah um i had left it because there were just a variety of personal reasons that kind of made me leave it and um at the end of 2012 I was in a long-term relationship with someone and he went off to boot camp and I was stuck at home with these two puppies that woke up at five in the morning and I'm not a morning person. I, I was really, really bored. So I started watching Star Trek, the original series in the morning because I was awake and I thought, Hey, wasn't that like the original slash ship? I wonder if that fandom is still around and lo and behold, the Star Trek fandom is still around. And I was like, Hey, I remember fandom. That one was really fun. Maybe I'll do that again. And so I came back in through uh, Star Trek fandom and then discovered that the Smallville Slash Archive had been imported to a website called Archive of Our Own. And they were very kind and turned my works over to me. And I cried a lot. It was a good day. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> well, um, I've talked Clex and a few other interviews. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but... Uh, I got to say, I think this was the first of your Smallville fix that I read, Play Forgiveness, from you. And it's just like, it's beautiful and it feels like kind of a, a love letter to the fandom. And just every single scene is just everything that you want from a post-Rift Clark Lex fic. And 
as I was rereading this, I realized I wrote a President Lex fic where he's president, yeah. and there's so much that I can see of in what I did in Play Forgiveness. So thank you for your <laughs> inspiration. <laughs> um, what do you remember about this fic in particular, the idea or um, writing it, just in kind of preliminary on this fic? Sure. Um, I, uh, as we discussed a little earlier, I, I didn't watch Smallville past the fourth season, but I was fortunate enough to catch the finale. It happened to be on uh, on demand. So I got to watch it in, it must have been 2013, because that's the year I wrote the story. And I was, I mean, you knew it was coming. And they had like this horrible confrontation scene. And I'm like, that was bad enough. And then they go wiping Lex's memories. And I had a complete like meltdown on my living room floor. But then I thought, hey, this is perfect. His memories have been wiped. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't remember the things he's done. And maybe Clark could learn to forgive him for that if he's dealing with a Lex who really doesn't remember some of his choices. And they could rebuild from kind of this clean slate. And maybe that would be something that Clark would want to do because um, I don't know. I just I feel that Clark, once he got old enough. And could make his own decisions and isn't kind of under, you know, his parents constant pressure that, that maybe that was something he could choose for himself. And so it, it was I mean, that was that was I wrote that totally to soothe my own heart. I, I did not know the fandom was like still awake enough to read it. So I was really shocked when people read that story. because I'm like, where did all of you come from? <laughs> um, but it, it, it was just very soothing. And I was going totally by memory because I, I didn't remember. Like I had a friend I pulled off Tumblr. And she was like going through it with me because I'm like, I don't remember 90% of this. And so she was like fixing canon details for me as we went along. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I remember the day I learned about Connor existing. And that was like an amazing, cause I had no idea that he existed. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you specifically about that. If you pull that from the show or comics canon. So I think it happened in the comics. They retconned the genetic connection, I think think in the comics first and then Smallville. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, the fact that canonically Lex and Clark have a son, which a I always son! hate when they call him a clone. I'm like, he's not a clone. Like he's got two sets of genes. Mine has a child. No. It's unbelievable. It's so funny how like mainstream comics fans like to look over that. And it's like, what a rich situation and character for exploration and so slashy. Like, oh my God. Very. So I love that you put that little tease in there that um, Clark tells Lex about Connor's existence. You don't get to see Connor, but we get that feeling of like, oh, well, they're going to meet someday and it's all going to be good. I didn't feel confident writing him because I had no idea like who he was. Uh, my friend was the one who was feeding me all the information. So I'd, I'd never really like seen him and I didn't feel, I didn't want to, I thought mentioning him was enough. So that's, that's what we did. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um yeah, and I just love all the little, like, it stays in Clark's point of view, and I love um, just kind of how, like, sleepy and sweet, like, it opens and he's, like, trying to get into his uniform. It's, like, three in the morning, and he's struggling with his zipper and his boots, which, you know, normally in the show, they just zip, he just tornadoes yeah. into a costume, but I love that kind of humanizing um aspect it's gotta be terrible to get that late night middle of the night call i would be a i would be a terrible superhero <laughs> uh, it's i love when you get you get the time in fan fiction to dig into those like everyday difficulties that a superhero would actually have mm-hmm. um yeah it's a beautiful fic um i don't know you guys should all read it and it's a perfect like white house president lex story did you ever watch west wing at all 
a little bit. I've, I, um, it was, I remember when it was airing. So I definitely have seen uh, parts of it. Um, and all of the White House details in that story are totally made up in my head from either Googling or having watched things like the West Wing. Uh, I do not know what it is like to be president. And um, actually, with our, I used to feel weird about the fact that Lex I, had his cell phone in that story. But then I believe our last president, like actual president, I believe he had access to his cell phone. And I was like, hey, play forgiveness is totally legitimate now. So now I don't feel weird about it. I love, uh, yeah, the, this, the uh, bits where they text back and forth and just the restraint that they have to have, like, like they can't, because someone could find Lex's cell phone or hack into that, like, they can't actually really express what they want to say. And that's the whole, like, tone of the piece. It's like, it's like restrained. I don't know if you'd call it, like, slow burn, but it's just that Clark is coming off a relationship with Lois and he's, like, trying to figure out how to... I feel like a lot of it's just getting back to where they should have always been. Like, it's interesting without Lex's memories. It's like you said, it's almost this burden lifted and they're trying to start blank slate. And it's an interesting thought about how much of that relationship is what it would have been without all these bad memories, but also without the good memories of the first couple years. But they kind of still managed to get back to like, an essential Clark Lex dynamic by you see that in their texting and Lex's humor with Clark and just some kind of innate attraction that they have for each other. Um, was that hard at all trying to find a Clex dynamic that felt natural without Lex remembering? No, they've, they are the easiest um, ship to write for me. Like it's very easy for me just to slip back into the two of them and, and, I felt like Lex might personally feel awkward. I think, I think, I think you said, and I think I did, I wrote it from Clark's point of view. I figured that Clark would probably treat him as he had always treated him and probably wouldn't act any differently because to him memories or not, that would still be Lex to him and that he would probably be very natural with him and that Lex would probably just react to it the way that he had the first time around, whether he remembered how they had been or not. Um, but the the idea of him not remembering the good times like was so heartbreaking to me to know that he would never get to have that back. Um, but I also I loved I loved that I loved that he kind of had this bitterness uh, that he carried because of that. But that maybe both of them would cherish everything, including the most boring moments, even more because they it is the second time and it is a second chance, which most people probably wouldn't get. You wouldn't get a second chance with the person that they got away. But you can do these fan fiction. <laughs> I was I was trying to find that line. Um, <clears throat> I printed this off and oh my god, you have the pen because <laughs> I I like to like underline things and make notes, uh, which is great. But then during the podcast, I, there's always just like page sounds happening in the background. Um, there's uh, oh, it's just a really sweet scene. There's so like every scene is just like sort of this palpable loss of like what they could have been, what they were. But it's also like they're so easy. Like you said, it's like there's such an easy dynamic that it's so sweet. But uh, there's a line that I'm wondering if it's the one I'm thinking of. I'm gonna laugh. It's um, I would give anything to remember. I wonder if that's what you're thinking of. I was like, I thought I found it in a second, and I, I'll cut out all this, like, gap in here, so it'll sound like I found it right away. <laughs> I love that about editing things. It's like, yes. It's an evening scene. I think they're on the couch in Clark's apartment or something like that. Yes. So I think every scene in the story is the two of them. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're always kind of um, 
Yeah, just try. It's like Clark is Superman, Lex is the president. Nobody can know about them, and Clark's also trying to figure out when he is Superman and when he's Clark with Lex. And so they're always kind of catching up, like at night and after Lex has like worked all day. So Lex is like always tired. That was kind of interesting to think about because I think in today's, I think we had one president who was not married, um, and I don't know if he even dated and married while he was president, but I was trying to think if we had a single president, America would be so hyper obsessed if that person were in a relationship. And so that was kind of interesting to think about how that would have to be so down low if they wanted any peace because they'd be hounded otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll just read a little bit of this if that's okay um, with you. So they've I think uh, they go back to Clark's place at some point, and they're just kind of talking. Oh, they're going, oh, it's just so sweet. They're going through the photo album that Clark left on this coffee table. Uh, we'll just go right here. Um, Clark is saying, there are a lot of things about you, which I'll tell you if you really want to know, but I'd rather not. Was I really that bad? Lex asks. Clark doesn't answer. Lex frowns and bites his lower lip, nodding slowly. Why were you willing to see me? He asks after a minute. You called Superman, Clark says gently. And if I'd called you? I don't know, Clark rubs the back of his neck. I probably would have met up with you. My mom always said I forgave you too easily. I'm glad, Lex says. He's still staring at the photos, but he's not really looking at them. Hey, Clark says, taking the book from him and setting it on the coffee table. You're not that guy anymore. You don't ever have to be that guy again. He takes Lex's hand and holds it between his. They're quiet for a long time. Have I ever kissed you? Lex murmurs. Clark shakes his head. Lex wraps his fingers around Clark's tie and pulls him forward until their mouths just touch. In his chest, Clark's heart is pounding. He reaches a hand to Lex's face and cradles it, opening his mouth when Lex does. He's imagined this a thousand times, how it would feel to kiss Lex. He used to fantasize about it in high school, about kissing Lex up against the side of his Porsche or pressing him back on the desk in his office. He'd dream about them concealed among hay bales, about miles of Lex's pale skin beneath Clark's hands, about running his lips over Lex's scalp. They end up lying on the couch, Lex half on top of him, his tie on the floor. His hands snake under Clark's shirt and up his sides. Clark is careful not to hold him too tightly, but a part of him wants to brand Lex into his skin. Lex's voice is a hot, melancholy whisper in his ear. I would give anything to remember you. So it's like this, like, beautiful moment, but it's like all of that loss of everything Clark remembers and everything Lex doesn't. And Lex knows he doesn't. And, uh, I don't know, it's just like such a great line. Um, I'm really glad you like it. That's probably my favorite part in that story. That I don't have my notes from that time, but I'm pretty sure that was the one of the scenes that I could sort of see and that I knew was going in from the beginning was that he was going, Lex was going to have a, a real preoccupation um, with the fact that he couldn't and could never remember these things and was reliant on Clark to feed them back to him. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple other little things I love. I um, I think it's actually before that scene when, when whenever Clark has a conversation with Martha and he's kind of okay. teased this relationship with her. She's like, oh, is it someone I know? And he says, yes, it's someone you know. And how long before I get to uh, see them or something? It's like, he says like about seven years because Lex has got another <laughs> term left. So, and she's trying to figure this out. And then when he finally tells her, she kind of goes, oh, 
I always wondered. So it's like not that much of a surprise to Martha. So I loved that. I love that. Appreciate the low key coming out. I um, and that's probably because I, I, that's probably more wish fulfillment on my part. It, it's so common, and it was more common in old school Smallville fandom for his parents to be a bit more homophobic, um, and I don't like that with them. So I, it always like a Martha who's very okay with it. Yeah, me too. Me too. And it makes sense at the time. Like gay marriage wasn't uh, even on the oh, yeah. radar for being legal. Like they, I think they were at, they were probably still talking about don't ask, don't tell back then in 2001, 2002. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah. How far we've come. It really is. <laughs> but like I live in Kansas and I uh, grown up around conservatives and it's interesting because you definitely get the people that are totally never in a million years support it. Um, but people can surprise you. And I feel like the Kents have, you know, they've raised an alien. And so even though Jonathan obviously has his moments in the show of like, obviously toward, like he's a bigot toward Luther's, but nothing's really convinced me in the show that he would ever be homophobic. So I also kind of kid canon that even Jonathan were alive, his problem would be with Lex specifically, not with a gay thing. Like he's raised an alien. I agree. Yeah. Um, so it's a beautiful piece and, um, like it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorites. I should, uh, I could talk about Clark and Lex all day Same. and we can all, <laughs> we could always go back to them. Um, so with the shows, Supernatural was right on top of Smallville, but from Smallville, was it into Star Trek was your next fandom before you, cause you didn't come into Supernatural, like you said, till late. Later, I was um, I was small Smallville fandom, and then I actually took like a six year hiatus from fandom where I didn't participate at all. I came back in into Star Trek fandom, and then Star Trek fandom led me to Supernatural because there was a weird amount of overlap on my Tumblr dash of Destiel shippers who were also into Kirk Spock, and so I'm like, I better check the show out because it looks so cute. Because if you judge Supernatural by what Tumblr tells you Supernatural is about, you will come away thinking it's this adorable show. It's so cute. Okay, Supernatural is nothing like what Tumblr tells you it is. But I did, I did end up actually really liking the show. So Supernatural came after Star Trek, and I got into that, Um, I don't know, maybe 2014-ish. It was definitely when the 10th season was airing. Because I caught up, I watched... I watched the first nine seasons of Supernatural in two weeks. Holy shit. Um, I was going through a turbulent time in my relationship, and I just power marathoned it and caught up in time to watch season 10 as it aired. That's awesome. So, well, let's get into, uh, we can come back to Star Trek then. Let's get into Supernatural. Um, Supernatural. So, I, I'm trying to remember when I saw the show. I was in my first couple of years of college, I think. So it was probably like 2009, 2010. So the show, I think, was probably in its sixth or seventh season. But I, somebody had told me to watch the show. So I bought the first season on DVD. So no commercials, just got to blow through the DVDs. And was just, yeah, blown away. It. I had been watching... Um, I would go like go home on the weekends to my parents' house and we would watch The X-Files. Like We were going yes. through the DVDs. Mm-hmm. Which is seems like another show that a lot of people that get into Supernatural were in the X Files fandom at some point, but it's like the especially those first couple of seasons, it kind of felt like X Files. Like I think Kim Manners yeah. was on the show. There were some there were some common like show people on the uh, crew and the writers, and it was kind of like weird and dark. But they didn't have the big angel demon kind of mythology yeah. yet. Um, 
So anyway, I, I've seen like the first five seasons and for whatever reason, I just dropped off. So I have kind of the Kripke arc. Up actually is after five. That's perfect. Yeah. And so it's like his kind of original vision. But I've seen some stuff um, after that, just episodes here and there. But um, I picked up, you've you've done a ton of supernatural fic, obviously. Um, but f- before we dive into the, the, uh, the piece that I picked, Superior, to talk about today, which was so much fun. Um, oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, yeah, coming into that supernatural fandom and you binge the show in two weeks and uh, getting into that community and starting writing? Um, supernatural was, um, I went into watching that show primed from my Tumblr dash. I, I assumed that I would go in and that I would immediately ship Destiel along with everybody else because uh, all of my Kirk Spock friends were into it. All but one. I actually have one Wincest shipping friend. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see, like, almost everybody boarded one ship and she boarded the other one. Um, so I went in primed expecting that I would really be into it, and I wasn't. Um, I got up to the fourth season, and I was so excited when Cass finally came on screen, and I didn't take to the ship at all. I actually almost anti-shipped it. I really disliked it. And I was devastated because um, all my friends were into this ship and I wanted to do what my friends were doing because I felt very like on the fringe. Uh, and so I kept watching and I kept watching and I kept watching. I got up to the seventh season and there was one moment where I was like, hmm, OK, maybe I can get on board the ship. And then the eighth season, I would say probably is kind of like peak Dean cast that had the the uh, the scene in the um, the crypt. And it had the, you know, breaking the character out of their mind control through the power of love trope, which is so great. Voltron pulled that as well. And I was like, all right, this ship's fine. And then I found the Dean cast Big Bang. It was a a Big Bang event that was signing up. And I loved the art for it. It was a really pretty picture of them lying on the grass. And there were like fireflies around their heads. And I'm like, I'm sure I could pull a story out of this, even if I don't really, really ship it. So I signed up for a Big Bang and I just started writing it. And through writing the ship, I talked myself into liking it. But it was not actually a ship that I shipped by watching. Um, I really did have to talk myself into shipping it. And then once I was into it, I was into it. And I liked it quite a lot. And I I wrote a lot of material for it. But I think one reason why I kept writing is it was the writing of the ship that made me like the ship. It wasn't I didn't get satisfaction by watching alone or by. So I just ended up creating a lot of stuff. But yeah, so then I ended up playing in that fandom for um, a handful of years. I'm still technically active in it. I I am running an event with a friend right now. Um, I think it's one that, like, you don't leave. <laughs> it sticks with you. <laughs> oh, it's a huge fandom. Um, yeah, I uh, I was excited to read this Dinkcast because, it, yeah, it's a huge ship. And I'm also oh. – I think part of it is because I've only seen the first five seasons that I just – I didn't see it. Like, I, I love Cass. He's so much fun. And there's sort of the line, like uh, – Dean's got the handprint on his shoulder and it's where I gripped you tight and raised you from perdition. Like there's stuff I could kind of see in there. And absolutely, when we talk about uh, Kirk and Spock, there's it's like that kind of dynamic. It's like the brash, uh, bold one and like the kind of logical sort of uh, mm-hmm. almost alien um, in a sense, but but I was I actually was also like into Wincess, and I think it's because that show in those seasons it was such a two character show, oh, and it's like so intense, and obviously the guys are extremely good looking, and they kind of push that like codependency a lot. Yeah, 
So it, it made sense to me, and uh, I read a lot of Wincess, but um, the Dean cast, yeah, I loved watching the show, but I, I didn't, I tried a couple of times to kind of read some Dean cast, and I didn't quite get it. Um, but I love what you do here uh, in this fic, and I'm sure there's a lot of it in your other supernatural fics, which is um, you just get to see really the dynamics of team free will as like a kind of a triangular dynamic. And I'm also a big Sam fan. Um, oh, Sam. Sam, yeah, and it's, I think, uh, maybe like a lot of us, I sort of more identify with Sam, you know, he's like, uh, he's like a college kid, and he just wants a normal life. And Dean is so entertaining, but not a lot of us have a lot in common with Dean, probably. <laughs> I laughed right to Dean. I, and that's probably why I ended up on the other ship. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And um, I feel I think, you know, when you have a show that's like, doesn't have that many main characters. You kind of get protective of them. And I was always sort of protective of Sam. And I thought, oh, I'm not interested in Dean Cass because it's just going to ignore Sam. And it very often does. He's very often fringed or he's used as a plot device to get them together, which is, I'm sure I've pulled that, but uh, probably not fun if he's your favorite character. Yeah. So like one of my big questions with, um, and we'll get into the plot of Superior, but like generally when you're writing Dean Cass, yeah, how do you keep Sam in mind? Because I feel like one, I'm sure one technique people do, obviously, as you said, is just to ignore him. Another would maybe be that, like, it's super hunky-dory, there's no, never any tension at all. And then another is maybe just to make it super angsty or conflicty. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I feel like you'd strike a great balance of where Sam is supportive, but it's not like, you're not ignoring the fact that this was like a two, kind of a brother dynamic, and now all of a sudden Cass is there, and it does change things a little bit. So I guess when you're going into that, how do you think about how to treat Sam? Sure. I had a unique perspective on this because um, I've been both the uh, the in-law and I have also been the person in a the couple that lived with uh, a relative of a half of the couple. When I a few years ago, when my ex and I were still together, my little sister lived with us for six months. And so it was the two of us who are a, a couple and my sister And I got to see what it looked like when you had a committed couple living in the same household as the single younger sibling and what that looked like. And I remember that, you know, my sister and I had our own relationship going back to when she was born because she's younger. So we had our own in-jokes and, you know, favorite things and things we did together. But she also struck up a completely unique relationship distinct from her relationship to me and distinct from her relationship to me and my ex as a couple with my ex. They were friends. They had their own inside jokes. They palled around. If I was working, they would grab dinner. And so I I think being in a situation where I've gotten to actually experience that and see that the third person functions, you know, they're not just sitting on the side rooting for you to, you know, my sister did not sit around rooting for me and my ex to like get married. Like that's not how she, how she functioned. Um, gave me a, a unique perspective when I was sitting down to, to write Superior specifically. That was the first one I think I ever wrote that really focused on Sam because he's, um, I love him, but I just had never thought to write a story where it was from his point of view and he and Cass switch off in that uh, point of view in that story. Dean doesn't actually narrate at all. Um, and the other thing is that I, I also, my, my other sister is married and I get along really, really well with her husband and he and I actually have a ton of stuff in common. Um, and uh, so I, again, it kind of, you know, there, there are things that the, that the in-law will have in common with the other in-law, you know, not their partner. Um, 
And they're going to have moments where it's just the two of them. It's not all the couple plus the extra person. And so that was a big driving force with Superior. I, I think probably it was a reaction to a lot of what I was seeing in fandom, which is that Sammy very often got used as we, we call it shipper Sam, where Sam is in the story to cheer Dean and Cass along. And like they'll sit down and have conversations where Sam's like, you know, Dean, you're probably bisexual and you should marry Cass. And I'm like, listen. Never once have I had this sort of conversation with my brother-in-law. We talk about beer. We might talk about like some delicious snack food that we ran across or like something we read on the news. We don't talk about his relationship with my sister. Like, in fact, I don't want to talk about your relationship with my sister. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think some of my favorite scenes in this are between Cass and Sam. Like Cass and Sam are very important to me as like uh, friends. They, they're, their dynamic just entertains. I would watch a show that's just the two of them like palling around. I find them so entertaining. Absolutely. And um, I I have a little section picked out here to read, if you don't mind, too, where it's like right at the beginning. And I feel like you you kind of set the tone for how the three of them are kind of going to work. Um, so this is uh, Dean and Cass kind of give a get a private moment to themselves. Um, and then um, and they're arriving in Michigan to sort of investigate what might be a case. It might not be a case. They're not sure. Um, so this is like super early. It's like the second scene or something in this. So let's see. This is Cass talking. Do you think Sam minds? He asked when his heart had calmed down. He rebuttoned his collar and righted his tie, crumpled from Dean's fist. His hair was mussed where Dean's fingers had pulled at it. He let it be. What, this? Nah, he's cool about it, Dean said. He tucked his shirt in and checked his reflection. Did he say something? He looks at me strangely sometimes. Kid's got a strange face. Dean <laughs> cast a smile across the front seat. Cass, Sam loves you. You're part of this family. If he's got any problems with this, it's not for the reason you think. I'm concerned he feels that I took his brother. Dean sighed. You and me, we got our thing. Sam and me, we're brothers. They're not... You can't compare them. I can appreciate that it must be strange to have me here. I know I was a dick about it at first, but we both want you here, Dean said firmly. He melted into the seat and rolled his head side to side. Sam has been in relationships. He knows how it works. Castiel didn't bother to keep the joy off his face. I thought that word was off limits. Dean's neck and ears flushed a lovely pink. He angled his head away to hide a smile, but Castiel perceived it in the muttered, shut up, and the way <laughs> Dean's hand fit over his knee like a puzzle piece, which is just lovely, but it kind of like Dean sort of lays it out there, and you find that that's, I think, the case, and uh, just like you said, each kind of side of the triangle has its own dynamic, and um, I... I don't know. I, I just thought it was nice that you didn't like make it super sugary or yeah, just make Sam a cheerleader. Like I felt, I don't know if it was on purpose, but I felt like there's little moments where you feel not necessarily tension, but it's just, you feel that, um, you know, Sam in a way, uh, I guess you could see it as a third wheel, like he'll give them their privacy or he'll kind of look away when they're having an intimate moment or like when they first come up to the cabin, there's only two chairs on the porch and Dean has to drag a third out. Like, I don't know how much of that was purposeful, but so you kind of feel that they're, they're all feeling this out together. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it's not all smooth, but it's like, okay, because Sam loves his brother and he likes that Cass is there. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was well done. I'm sure it, I'm sure it probably all came from me watching my sister get into relationships because I'm the oldest of three. And when my sister did start dating seriously, her, her husband, it was weird for me because she and I had lived together and we did everything together. And then suddenly, what do you mean you're leaving me? <laughs> How dare you? Um, and so I think it probably just all kind of came from my life experience and just knowing how odd it is when your sibling does, you know, go do her own thing and you don't, you know, you're not the the one that you don't get to see her every single day or hang out every single day. She's got her own family and her own life, but you still have, you know, like she and I went on vacation last week for the first time ever, just the two of us. It was super fun. We've never done that. Um, so you still have your moments, but. Yeah, I love that. I've definitely experienced that uh, in my life because I, I live with my boyfriend, but my <laughs> sister comes over occasionally and it's like balancing. Uh, and it's not like I'm a different person, but yeah, it's just a different dynamic between me and my boyfriend and then me and my sister. And sometimes like we get to talking and we sort of like get so excited. And I think it's overwhelms my boyfriend a little bit, to be honest. So I've done that to people. <laughs> yep. So he'll usually like, he's like, okay, I'm just going to go do something or like get on my computer and kind of give us our time to do our dynamics. So yeah, it's all balancing that. Um, but yeah, so superior, let's dig into that uh, real fast. So I love this. I love case fix in general and I've never done one. Um, and I think supernatural obviously is ex extremely natural um, uh, fandom to do one in. Like I've seen Harry Potter's done, you know, like every fandom has a way, whether it's AU or it's in canon to do a case fic. But it's like, um, they're always so, when they're well done, it's so entertaining. Like this feels like it could totally be an episode of Supernatural. Like the way it's structured, the way it plays out, like the mystery of it, the details um, feel like an episode. And I love that it feels like that atmospheric kind of like the the details of the case and the setting. It all kind of like feels a little um, – what am I trying to say? I probably wrote this down somewhere, but um, – there's a little bit of ominousness and mystery to the air. Like they're on Lake Superior. So it's like kind of cold and rainy and foggy. And uh, so it feels like a very like, to me, like season one, season two, kind of, uh, or like an X-Files. Mm -hmm. um, so I loved that. So can you tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, I guess how you maybe planned it out or what the idea was and um, yeah, anything kind of you remember initially about this fic? Sure. Um, I I think that was my first attempt at a case fic. Um, it, that was written for the first round of Supernatural Case Fic Mini Bang, which was an event I ran for two years in, I think, 15 and 16. Um, I ran it with a friend. Unfortunately, it's not running anymore, um, but uh, we ran it for two rounds. And that first round, the challenge was to invent some sort of creature and you had to incorporate that in a case fic because a problem, and you've probably seen this if you've read Supernatural Fic at all, is that we tend to, the writers tend to default to like five species that you're going to see. Like, so you run into like a Wendigo, a vampire, a witch, it's a shapeshifter. And we were like, can anybody please come up with something other than like these five? Like, I swear to God, if I read another Wendigo, I'm going to go out of my mind. And so we're like, what if we make it a challenge where you had to create a creature? And so I um, wanted to set something in my home state. I'm from Michigan. I am from the lower peninsula. The thick is set up on the UP, but um, I wanted to set it in my home state. I wanted to use the lakes. So I knew I was looking at some sort of a water creature 
And I just started thinking about the mythologies that I really enjoy. I had never dealt with sirens and I really like selkies. So I created a siren selkie hybrid. Sorry, I'm totally spoiling my story, but you're not going to read it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> siren selkie hybrid. And um, there were actually two of them in the story. One of them had more selkie characteristics and one of them had more siren characteristics. And the two of them were actually causing some of what you were seeing in the story. Um, but it was really important to me um, to, to deal with, um, I didn't want to kill them. Um, and a lot of the case fix ended with the monster getting, you know, vanquished or something. And I didn't want to do that because one thing that kind of bothers me about Supernatural, although it does make sense, is that Sam and Dean spend a lot of time just killing things that are just trying to live their lives. And, um, it, you know, so I wanted to kind of present a creature that was sentient and nice and you know so Ronan like is a bartender he runs a bar and you know he'll serve you drinks and talk to you and you can have a conversation with him does he deserve to die just because of what he is and so that was like a question that I kept in mind as I was writing it is like do these things deserve to get killed just because of what their nature is so that was kind of interesting to explore uh, from a writer and so I did leave them alive they Sam does not kill them um and so that was a really important thing to me as I wanted these creatures who were going to survive the story. I needed a plausible reason why they survived the story. And I wanted something that focused very much on Sam with Cass as kind of the second. I, I didn't think I could pull off the whole story from Sam's point of view, which is why I switch off with with Castiel. I wasn't super confident in my ability to write Mr. Winchester. But I in, interviewed a good friend of mine who's just like loves Sammy. I actually picked her brain for a while about like her favorite parts of his character, just in case I'd kind of missed something because I latched on to Dean immediately. Um, you know, I'm an older sibling. I'm an Aquarius. I'm very overly concerned about my younger sisters and took a lot of care of them when I was younger. And Dean and I have a lot in common in an annoying way. <laughs> <laughs> Very like unconfident, you know, some confidence issues that I feel like Dean had when he was a little bit younger. Um, so it was a that story was just a really cool stretch in a lot of ways because it was plot driven, which I don't usually do. I must always do character driven. So I had to have like a plot. Yes. And like if like things that were happening, people couldn't just be sitting in their bedrooms having quiet conversations. It was very, <laughs> very different for me, but it was so much fun. And I remember the first draft of that story, I, I sent it to my friend, uh, Goo. Um, she she alpha read it for me. And I, I knew it wasn't right yet. And she was like, yeah, no, it's like super obvious who's doing this. So I had to like go back and like figure out how to twist it. Um, so it was a really good challenge. And I think I've written maybe one other. I've written one other case, two other case fix. Lenovo and its sequel are technically case fix, sort of. Um, but they're very difficult for me because I, I don't um, like it's the same reason I've never tried to write like a murder mystery. Where do you start? <laughs> like, do you start with like the, the crime and work backwards? And so it was a really good challenge. I loved writing it. I loved honoring my home state. Um, I don't know if I could ever pull a story off like that again, <laughs> but it was fun. It was so. Do you remember how long it took you to write it? Superior was not a super long one. That probably took me a few months. Most most things I write take me about five months start to finish. And I wouldn't. Hello, dog. Who's staring? I'm being stared at by a dog. <laughs> uh, more than likely, that was one that was a fairly quick. It came together fairly quickly because it was for a challenge. So we didn't I didn't have the three years that I could that I very often give other stories and let them sit. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that bang only had. Oh, my gosh. Can you hear my dog? That's, yeah, that's, that's OK. I'm so mad that he's not being interviewed right now on the podcast. 
He do, he hates oh. that I write because it takes me away from playing with him. Yes. Um, but yeah, that was that one came together pretty quickly because of the. I, I find if I write something for a bang, I write it quickly, and if it's not for a bang, I it takes me like three years. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, I will say like I. I think uh, for me, it um, I it just was so absorbing, and I at some point I think as it was, I didn't anticipate. I guess who did it? Like I could, I was like suspecting, oh, this like singer maybe, and I was like right along with them, and and then I did sort of start to think about the bartender, but then it wasn't like the way that you sort of twisted their relationship to each other and how their circumstances like that totally surprised me and I was like this is so fucking cool like that last confrontation yes so it totally and and you're just kind of drawn in like you you know you go into the victims and their and the details about them and how they died and it all kind of like unfolds at a really nice pace and um yeah just like in the show like it just felt like an episode to me in in like the best way so Oh, at, just sort of on that at that point of view note, because um, I feel like a lot of people would have chosen to do probably alternate Dean and Cass. Did you pick yeah. that Cass and Sam alternating specifically to, um, I don't know, just keep from kind of losing Sam? I guess you sort of already addressed it, but like that you, you have already had in mind that you wanted Sam to definitely be telling the story. Yeah, I went into that. Initially, I had hoped to maybe just make it entirely from Sam's point of view. I wanted to, I'm pretty sure I'd had a conversation with people about if we had ever seen a Dean Cass fic written from Sam's point of view entirely, where Dean Cass was just in the background. I'm pretty sure it was inspired by a conversation like that, where I was like, I would like to try that one where the focus isn't the relationship, but that the relationship is there, but in a way that's kind of comfortable and not distracting to the main plot, that I just didn't feel like Sam alone would give me the, it would have lost some of the moments between Dean and Cass that are, I think, necessary to understand what Dean's going through in that, because you're watching him get sicker and sicker as the fix going on, and we had to be in the room with one of them. Um, But I did, it was nice to take a break from Dean. Yeah. Because I wrote from Dean's point of view a lot. And um, Sammy was fun. I really did enjoy that. Yeah, he's awesome in this. And um, I also just, yeah, it's a small thing, but I appreciated that, like, I, yeah, like I said, I hadn't seen anything past season five. And I know that you set this in, like, I think it's season 11, maybe. Yeah, like ambiguous. What was so funny is at the time I was writing for Supernatural, I was, like, hyper obsessed with telling you exactly where it could fit into the canon and looking back, I'm like, why did I care so much about that? Yeah. You, you mentioned Eileen, who is a character I didn't know, but that was really the only kind of marker um, time wise. So it, um, it worked really well. It's just kind of standalone, just kind of classic, timeless, supernatural fic. Um Yes. Oh man. I just, just so I just need to write you a review so I can put on all the little things that <laughs> I loved about this. But that I think I think probably my favorite part about it is just um yeah, how you treat like quote unquote like the villains, like that last scene where um they I guess we've spoiled it already, but where Ronan calls his sister up on shore and he's talking to her and he's just like he's so like when you, right when they confront him in the apartment it's like classic supernatural he's like dangerous and 
you know, Sam's got the knife, or they're basically ready to sort of kill him. And then I can't remember if it's Sam or Dean picks up on like, something's not right. Like he's too, he's ready to die. He must be protecting someone. And then that like opens up this whole other, other side of the story um, with him and his, he's protecting his sister, which is like classic supernatural, like the sibling protectiveness. So yeah, it's like kind of a Sam Dean dynamic. If things hadn't, if they had been born monsters, you know, and what it means to be a monster in the humanity. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting AU. Yeah, it would be. I'm sure someone's written it is the funny part. Somebody's somebody's written everything. (laughs) Yeah. And the whole, you know, the whole thing is just, um, like I said, so like atmospheric, which is just something about the lake and the water and it being cold. And even the very end when Cass and Sam are like on the porch, um, kind of soaking up, there's a little bit of sun peeking through the clouds. Um, but Sam's like looking out into the water and he thinks he sees something. And it, it just kind of ends on a note of a little bit of like unease. And um, it's so it's not like real pretty with kind of a bow on top. Like things are kind of wrapped up, but they're sort of not, you know. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that was one of the stories where I had the ending line from the beginning. Because sometimes I'll know the line I'm ending on. And that one I had really early was that I knew Sam that the last image in the story was him pretending like he hadn't seen whatever he thought he'd just seen and still being really unsettled. Even though he felt like he'd made the right decision in not killing them, he was still just really uncomfortable with the whole situation. So I'm glad I felt that way because that was that's what I was hoping to do with that. Yeah, uh, Sam's just looking out into the water, and uh, I'll just read a couple sentences here. Cass got up and stretched his arms in the manner of wings, which actually specifically is like one of my favorite lines. Like just that image of stretching his arms like wings. I don't remember writing that, but that's nice. It's, isn't, it, isn't it nice when you can go back and like, did I write that? Oh, I like, I like that. I wish I could write like that today. It'd be great. <laughs> um, Cass got up and stretched his arm in the manner of wings. The cloud cover shifted, letting sunlight spill down onto the lake through the cracks and about a hundred feet offshore. Something large and gray bobbed among the waves. It sent a chill through Sam's entire body. One blink, and it was gone, slipped beneath the surface, as though it had never been. What is it? Cass asked, noting Sam's sudden stiffness, how he'd rolled Dean's book into a tube that he held in a fist. He'd probably imagined it, just a trick of the light, but Sam couldn't get out of the chair fast enough. Nothing, he said, hurrying after Cass up the gravel path, the lake squarely behind him barking echoed of the beach that might not belong to a dog i didn't see anything so it's like this kind of call to the selkie again and it's um yeah just a classic it, it feels very classic to me and um, oh, i really am happy if it felt like an episode that makes me very that was kind of like i said i don't tend to write plot driven and the idea of writing for tv is absolutely terrifying so if it felt at all like an episode i'm very happy <laughs> It absolutely did. So uh, kudos. Well done. Um, So to kind of pull around to another um, pairing that, yeah, I got the same feeling from Dean and Cass that I that I got from Kirk and Spock and maybe Kirk and Spock, for whatever reason, was more obvious. I think because of all of the history, all of the groundwork that the original series obviously laid. Um, But it's like that same kind of dynamic. But you got into Kirk Spock. um, So, oh, man, I just I had to say, like, last night I was like, I have to rewatch this movie just to, like, get back into that Kirk Spock. The uh, the 2009. Yeah. 
that I got to tell you, I'll, I'll ask you like how that movie, um, you know, when you saw that movie, but I was um, kind of at that like magic, like I was 19 and I know a lot of fan of stuff happened to you when you were 19, but I was just like done my first year of college and you're kind of like lonely, like as in you've all your high school friends, um, a lot of them are gone and for whatever reason, that movie hit me at a time and just like blew the back of my head off. Like I had grown up on Voyager and the next generation, but that movie, like how it looked and the, and the cinematography and Chris Pine is just like a whole aesthetic. Oh my God. And the music. And it's like a perfect film to me as in like, it's got an action and adventure and although I'm not a huge fan of the Spock Uhura thing, like the whole thing has sort of a romance of its own. And um, God, like I was obsessed with Kirk Spock for like two solid years. I like joined a club. Um, it's all I could think about. So it was a huge, huge pairing for me. So I haven't read Kirk Spock in years. So I knew that I was going to interview. I was like, we have to talk about Jim and Spock. And um, you've written a ton, and I'm sure we could talk about any of your stories. But I selected Entering Orbit because it was so popular. It's a huge. It was a huge pick for you. Um, so yeah, what do you remember about uh, Entering Orbit and just that start, like getting into Star Trek uh, 2009 in general? Oh sure. Um, I I my mom is a Trekkie, so I was raised by a Trekkie. I grew up on like original series, lots of Next Gen, Voyager. I got into DS9 later on my own, which is hands down my favorite of the Trek series. It's so good. Awesome. But I love the yeah, I love the I love the old ship. Um, and um, so I got I got into Kirkstock specifically because my like I said I had puppies. I was up really early. I found Phantom again, and I'm like, well, this looks fun, and I think I could ship this. Um, and certainly in the reboot, the dynamic between Zach Winto and Chris Pine was just, they had such chemistry. Um, and, and there was chemistry in the original, and, and it's a very kind of different, softer, quieter, very respectful, mature dynamic. But the reboot just had this fire, um, especially after Star Trek Into Darkness came out, which was such a kind of ridiculous movie. But the fandom exploded. <laughs> Out. It was unreal, the thick and art explosion after that film. So I, I happened, I was very, very fortunate that I got back into fandom just prior to Star Trek in the Darkness releasing. So it was coming out, I think that fall, and we were in the summer. I was back in the fandom, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll see if there's like, you know, some... We didn't really have events back in the early 2000s. We had things like Drabble Communities, um, and there was a Plex challenge that I uh, took part in. Um, it was the CLFF, where they would like maybe assign a prompt, or, like a starting line, or maybe you had an image or something that you had to work from. But Big Bangs did not exist yet. Those were invented a little later in the Harry Potter fandom by actually a friend of mine who I know from Supernatural. She was on like the original mod team for the original the original Big Bang, which I think is very cool. Yeah, I wish I. I could say that. That's so neat. Um, and I discovered this thing called the Kirk Spock Big Bang. And I'm like, what is a Big Bang? This sounds amazing. And I signed up for it because um, I think you needed like 10,000 or 15,000 words. And it wasn't it wasn't so long that it was intimidating. It sounded doable. I was coming back. I hadn't written in two years at all. Not original, not not anything. So I was feeling very, very rusty. I was very nervous. But I thought, you know, this might be a good chance to finish something. I'm on a deadline. So I'm going to have to finish. 
and I'll get to work with a beta reader. So they'll help me fix it. And, you know, there'll be an artist and, and it sounded like a really nice way to come back into fandom. So I signed up and, um, I just wrote uh, what I considered to be the most simple story that nobody but me would care about. I remember telling my beta reader as she was going through it that I knew that it was just a very basic story and there was nothing exciting about it. And that I was totally aware that it was not the sort of thing anybody would want to read, but that I really appreciated her time on it. I remember writing that story. I wrote it out of order and then I literally cut the scenes. I printed it, cut the scenes into pieces and rearranged them on my floor and then put them into the order I wanted. It was such a disaster. It was the most, it was the most chaotic writing experience, but that's what you get when you haven't written in two years. Um, and finally got it together and we went through art matchups and I landed my friend Candy. She's now my friend. She was just this spectacularly well-known artist in the fandom. And without her doing the art on that, I don't think anybody would have seen the thing, but because of who I landed as an artist, the fic took off and people started reading it. And I thought, hey, maybe this, you know, stand and fandom is like something that I should do. This is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying this again. So that story is very special to me because it, it is really what gave me my confidence back and got me to stay in a fandom and led me to. I'm still friends with Candy. I was actually invited to her wedding. I wasn't able to go, but oh. do a big thing. You can become really good friends with your artists. They're such sweethearts. Um, but yeah, no, that that story was off the top of my head. I just packed in everything that I thought was soft and interesting. And um, it's I, it's one that I can't go back and read um, because I, I like I said, I was very rusty and I would probably construct it quite differently if I were to do it today. But I feel very fondly toward it because I, I wrote it with a lot of love and um, it had like a lot of little domestic quiet moments, which are my favorite. My favorite stories in the world are like boring moments, like where people are making food or going to the grocery store. I love stuff like that. I'll eat it up. Uh, and so that was just loaded full of the most boring moments. <laughs> I think there's a hot tub. I think I put a hot tub in that story. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Like, what can we shove into this? Oh, but yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, it's like the most like comfort, like without being, because I don't like to read like only fluff, like just total yeah. domestic bliss fluff. Like there's got to be something there. And you have, in my opinion, you have enough um, angst. And I mean, Jim Kirk is like, he's such an awesome character. He's because he's like full of like bravado and fun and sexiness and just like, and, and, uh, and Chris Pine did such a great job, like taking the best parts of Shatner's performance and like making it, uh, sort of make sense. Um, and perhaps a way that, uh, Shatner's character now would just be like, what is he doing? <laughs> you know? But, like, the core of William Shatter's Kirk is uh, such an awesome character, but the mm -hmm. um, the, st the writing and, I think, Chris Pine's performance gives you, like, an underlying um, – what am I trying to say? Like, uh, he's got a lot of darkness in him, especially with, you know, like, his, the day of his birth is the day that his father died. So, like, I think you bring up in here, like, his birthday isn't something he ever celebrated. He would just get presents on his brother's birthday – um, and you don't ever get to see Jim's mom because she's still out in space. And um, yeah, yeah, you in in this world, I can't remember how much of her we get. Um, in she's I don't in follow up. There's like a sequel. I know she shows up in that, but I think she's. I can't remember if she's in orbit. I wrote her into a whole bunch of things. She was always in the background, and I mix up all of the stories now. I don't remember what's what. Yeah, she's not in this. She's mentioned, and I think you do a great job of like. 
Because the, um, I mean, you might have been able to do a scene with her. I don't know, but it was really about obviously, um, Jim and Spock kind of coming together. But although Jim loves his mother, like there's a lot of uh, complication there in their relationship and what happened with Jim's father. And she was just so obviously in love with George that she's like in space to be close to him, and it's just like, oh my god, it's like. <laughs> Chris Hemsworth. I rewatched that the other day and I was like, oh my God. He does with like the whatever four minutes of screen time he has or whatever, like that the last few seconds where he's driving the ship and Jim is born and he's like, it's a boy. It's a boy. Talk to me. Like, what does he look like? And he's and you see and you see like the clock ticking down to how like he has a minute left and they're talking about names and it's just like so he did such an incredible job with that like that that the power of that performance really goes into you know who Jim is as a person and his recklessness and um, yeah I think one of the things I loved about this is like how you weren't heavy handed I didn't think like it takes them I think like three or four chapters um, let's see it might be at like the end of chapter two or or no chapter three maybe that Jim even he has this like little oh moment where he he's like. It might be in the hot tub. I can't remember when Jim actually realizes that, like, oh, like, he, Spock is hot. Like, it hadn't really occurred to him. And I feel like you could have done, like, a lot of authors would have started that earlier and made it, like, just been heavy-handed with it. And you've somehow managed to accomplish, like, a great pacing, but without um, just forcing that. And so when the time when it actually happens, it's like, lovely and natural and you're like oh of course like but it, it's not obvious like at the beginning so is that something that um i don't know you thought about when you were doing this no that that story had like the the only plan for that story truly was i had the shower thought of i remember being in the shower when i had the thought of oh my god what if they get back to earth and starfleet still tries him like what if he's still put on trial i'm like that could probably happen that sounds terrible so i had that initial thought and then I had the thought of how can I write a canon divergent story that is not going to be ruined with Star Trek Into Darkness, which is coming up during the Bangs posting period. So I, the only, those were the only two thoughts I had were like, I need something where Jim is worrying and waiting and it has to end. It's so I knew it had to fit into the gap between the, the movie's ending and then it's sort of like epilogue scene where they're all coming back on board to go out on the five-year mission. Because if I did it anything past that, I knew we'd be screwed by Into Darkness. And we really would have been screwed by Into Darkness. Um, but no, I the planning on that was incredibly poor. Like, it didn't exist. I, I just kind of wrote scenes literally just off the top of my head and somehow cobbled them together and somehow a story came out. And I'm really still not sure how I pulled that one off. Because it was a mess. <laughs> yeah, and I I think you've done a great job of either going back and making it not look like a mess. Like I'm glad it didn't come across like a mess because it was it was a it was interesting. It was a sloppy. It was this, the one I wrote immediately after that. I wrote a very very uh, strict outline, and I followed an outline, and I wrote it in chronological order. So the follow up to that was uh, I forget it, only fools. That one was I wrote that strategically, but Orbit was just like. Chaos. It was kind of like primordial space soup, and it just somehow formed its own little universe, and it it worked. And okay, I'm I'm very happy for this miracle, and <laughs> it came together. Yeah, I mean, people often talk about in writing like pantsing versus planning, and I always 
you know, it seems the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, do you feel like you, the story could have even been planned? Like, I feel like sometimes you need that, you need it to be messy to explore. And then obviously it's a pain to go back and make it make mm-hmm. sense. But like, you almost can't plan some of the things that end up being your favorite scenes. Yeah, there. Um, I'm I'm like fifty fifty on whether I plan or or just go for it. There are some stories that I I can see them from the beginning and I can just sit down and write them and I don't need to outline. There are some that I have to outline because like Superior had like a rough outline because I had to hit certain plot points, um, and so I couldn't just kind of let the story do its own thing. But with Orbit and then with another one that I wrote in that in Star Trek fandom, which was called The Walls Between Us. That one was one where I had an idea. The two of them were locked in in a a primitive jail together and they managed to mind meld through their hands. And something happened while I was writing that I had not planned and it ended up making the story and it was really cool. And so I hate to limit myself to a point where I can't have those little discovery moments because sometimes you do have that moment where you're in the middle of a scene and a character who's not supposed to be there walks in. I know some people feel like they're in charge of characters. I never feel like I'm in charge. I'm just the one typing the words. Um, someone else is up here doing doing their thing. And that was definitely a story that I think a lot of what came out was just kind of spontaneous um, going to the bar and um, like all of their flirting. I don't think I had any of it planned. It's just I sat down and wrote scenes and stitched the scenes together and I don't know what it would have been like if I had tried to plan and it probably wouldn't have been very, it probably wouldn't have been very good. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like it unfolds very naturally. And again, that's, you know, part of that maybe is you going back and cleaning up, but I think part of it is definitely just like seeing what happens when you like Mm -hmm. Jim's in Iowa, you know, now what happens. Um, And I was just, I was thinking too, that like about, uh, you know, the similarities between Jim and Spock and Dean and Cass Mm -hmm. And then so many similarities. And then to take it a step further, the triangular relationship between uh, Jim Spock and Bones and then adding Sam into that, the triangle. And it's like, uh, there's probably lots of terms, but um, I feel like there's, you can kind of simplify down to an archetype. Like you kind of have the, the heart and the head and maybe what you call the soul or something. So I have like, Dean is the heart and Sam is the head. And then like Cass is kind of the soul that sort of, you know, helps them stick together as team free will. Mm -hmm. And then in that same sense, you have Jim and you have Spock, obviously is the kind of cool logic. And then you have uh, Bones. And so I loved that um, even though we don't get Bones hanging out in Iowa with the two of them, you get a lot of great Jim Bones interaction in the beginning when they're all still at uh, Starfleet and, just got back from the mission and things are kind of unraveling with the academic trial. And mm-hmm. then, but then you get bones on the phone to like talking to Jim and bones. I love it because it, maybe it's kind of a trope. I don't know, but bones immediately picks up on like, Oh, Jim's definitely going to fall in love with Spock. Like he's like, be careful. And there was a previous relationship with Gary that I love that you wrote. I always wrote him in relationships with Gary. I had like, a, I was fixated on that. I actually meant to write a Jim and Gary story. I never got around to finishing it. But it was the backstory of something I wrote in another. It was going to be the Jim and Gary relationship and how Bones finally like punched Gary because it comes up in something else. I never did write it. It's sitting in notes in a folder somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I forget Gary's last name, but he's in the sh- he's Gary in Mitchell. the sh- Gary Mitchell. He's in it. Fair he's enough. in an episode of the uh, the original series, and um, yeah, I love in this one. He's just like mentioned this, a previous relationship with Jim and Jim. 
you know, maintains when he's talking to Bones, he's like, it was just sex. It's fine. But Bones knows that Jim obviously got attached and fell a little bit and it did work out. And so when he tells Bones that Spock's here, Bones is like, oh, <laughs> he's like, be he's careful. I've <laughs> seen this before. And um, uh, I can't remember. I guess I don't know if Spock and Bones have any scenes in the beginning. Um I don't recall in that one if they do or not, because I think it's entirely from Jim's point of view, I think. Isn't yes, that? yes, you are correct. It's so long since I looked at that, I don't even remember. Yes, no, it's great. And part of that fun of that, I love that point of view, is that um, when you're seeing Jim interact with Spock, and you know what Jim's thinking, and he sees Spock's reactions to things, and it's always that great, I don't know what you call that, um, I don't know if it's dramatic irony, but, like, you see Spock react, and Jim's oblivious to, like, probably what Spock's thinking. But you as a reader, you know Spock, and you're like, oh, Spock's attract like, Jim's got his shirt off or something. And, like, oh, Spock's acting weird, or his ears go green, or whatever. <laughs> so you, like, pick up little bits that, like, oh, Spock is probably feeling some feelings for Jim. But, like, Jim's just, like, being his hot, hot self and just, like. Oh, hot. Ridiculous. You ever out of just to take a total uh have you ever looked up desert hooker photo shoot? Mm-mm. If you ever should look that up, you can attribute what you find to the 2013 Star Trek fandom. We are the reason that that became a thing. Put into Google, you'll have a, a <laughs> lovely treat in Google Images. And my blog doesn't come up first anymore, unfortunately, because I changed the URL, but the photo results will still be there. And that is that is just peak 2013 Star Trek fandom. <laughs> I remember I was trying to remember what I remember from the fandom, like because I was in it, yeah, 2009, 2010. Okay. Um, and I remember being on Live Journal. I remember there was like a did you ever encounter anything that was like GQ MF or GQ motherfuckers? It was basically like, um, it was just like beautiful pictures of Quinto and Pine, just like on the cover of GQ. They were so aesthetic. Oh my god! And like you said, like the the chemistry between them, a lot of that I think. Oh, and you because they when they did the press junkets, um, they would just it would just like be so like fun and flirty to each other and chris pine like totally leaned into like i don't know (laughs) i don't know if zach zachary quinto would come out yet but like it's for like fairly obvious that he's like at least not completely straight and a lot of like i feel like straight guys like pine might kind of shy away from any implication but (laughs) not at all A lot of my friends were into, uh, it was called Pinto, which was the RPF ship. So I had a lot, I think I I wrote one thing for it just for fun, but it was, that was the most uh, interesting, I think, side effect too of that fandom was watching people just kind of, they were very dedicated Kirk Spock shippers, but then they just kind of, you could see them just (laughs) start to lean over into that dark, dark, into darkness press tour started. It was like, hmm, this is, this is more interesting over here. Oh my gosh, the whole cast, yeah, it was so much fun. And I definitely got into Pinto, which I had never been into RPF before mm-hmm. at all. And that was definitely the fandom, I feel like, to do it if you're going to – I mean, uh, yeah. J-Square, like Jensen and Jared definitely um, had a There's huge – a lot of content. Mm-hmm. And actually that that whole like CW, like there would be all these like – obviously um, – Crossovers? Uh, yes, kind of crossovers. Yes. And you'd have um, – 
whatever, a Wellingbaum, uh, so Welling and Rosenbaum. But then you would have other, like, CW actors, like, Chad Michael Murray would be in there. <laughs> like, all, like, and it was just this, like, CW, like, fuck fest of attractive. Oh, I yeah. love it. I love it. I was a CW, I was a WB junkie when I was in high school. So, like, I knew all the WB people. Oh, my gosh. There were so many, like, um, I... In retrospect, I should have been into like all of this, like Dawson's Creek and One Tree Hill. I, I just, Creek. I think I just kind of missed those, like, like slightly. Maybe like if I would have been like three to five years older. I think I was a freshman in high school, if I'm remembering when Dawson started. So I think you would have been, I think you said back in middle school or maybe younger. It, I don't think you would have enjoyed it at that age. My mom didn't actually want me watching it. And then ironically got addicted to Dawson's Creek and it was like her favorite show. And I was like, <laughs> I loved Roswell. I was all, I was all about Roswell. I was listening to this podcast about like early 2000 CW shows that, um, cause I was like, oh, Smallville, like what else was on? And they mentioned Roswell and I was like, you know what? I remember seeing the previews for it. And I feel like I should definitely get into that show. I feel like I would love it. It was good. The only thing that was so sad is when they went out to video, they couldn't get the rights for a lot of the original music. So the theme song is still the same. But there was this scene that I was obsessed with, with Michael and Maria. And it had this one particular song. And when I got the DVD set for it, the song had been replaced. And I was heartbroken. I can't believe they can even do that. Like, if it's licensed in the show. But it wasn't licensed for, I guess it wasn't licensed for the DVD release. So they couldn't, and they couldn't afford it. And so they had spent all the money to get the theme song. I was really sad because I think today we could have like go fund, go fund me or something to pay for it. But that was, it was a little prior to that. It, Roswell was fun. That was another one that I watched for a couple of years and then kind of fell away from and then watched the finale. And that I read that book series. I actually still have it. If anybody wants a copy of it, I have all of the original Roswell books. <laughs> yeah, it's apparently hard to get it. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I I didn't even know there were books. Yeah, but it was based on a little book series. They they did actually. It's kind of a shame when they rebooted Roswell. They did go back because Liz Liz is Liz Parker in the original version, but that is not her name in the original. She's Hispanic, um, and they changed that for the original WB show, which I learned later. So it's good that when they remade it, they went back to they didn't cast like a white girl. Um, and yeah, glad because that was. Another thing that would have been called out today that obviously in the early 2000s, we didn't know or it wasn't called out and should have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, before we move on from this story, the, the last thing about it I wanted to mention was um, I thought the there's one scene in there. I mean, so many great scenes. Um, one scene I loved was when Jim drives Spock to the quarry. And I think they haven't uh they haven't kissed yet jim's made spock like dinner i think okay they've given each other gifts and and uh jim's been in the hot tub with spock uh while spock was naked he's like i just want to be comfortable and jim's kind of like okay (laughs) so he like looks away spock is not this is great like and they're playing chess and jim's just kind of like losing his mind a little bit like oh my god So in chapter four, um, Jim cooks uh, some soup for Spock. Obviously, Spock's lost his planet, so he's like, you know, just recovering from that. And it's like this beautiful thing that, um, you know, Spock's mother used to make. So Jim makes him this soup for him, which is great. And then they're slowly um, doing nice things for each other and sort of revealing the intimate parts of themselves that they don't like 
Um, like Spock doesn't talk about his mother to anyone else really. And then so Jim kind of on a, a whim or a impulse, like Jim's the most impulsive person, he decides to take Spock out on this ride to the quarry. Or of course in the show we see Jim drive the car over the cliff. And I remember on the DVDs, um, like in the show, it's just like this cool scene and you're like, oh, what a little badass Jim Kirk. But there's no backstory to that. And I remember in the deleted scenes, they they did fill that in a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So was this quarry scene one that kind of naturally came to you? Did you have that idea in the beginning? Or I don't know, did that scene stick out to you? I thought it was one of my favorite scenes in the whole story. I don't remember if I planned the quarry scene from the start or not, but I I know the deleted scene you're talking about. They dig in. If I'm remembering the scene, you see Jim's stepfather momentarily, um, the one who's yelling at him for stealing the car, which that part did make the um, that made the film. And I think you see Sam, who is his little brother. I think Sam Clark's in the scene as well. Um, and it's like Jim going out of the house and like running away from the farmhouse. And we all kind of seem to pick up on on there not being maybe like a really happy home situation. A lot of people leaned into maybe there was some abuse in the household involving the stepfather or. Um, and so I I'm sure I was influenced by that. I don't remember looking back if I had intended that quarry scene from the beginning. Most of what happened in that story was not intended from the start. It was just I would like finish up a scene and be like, where should I put them now? And then just write the next thing that popped into my head. So more than likely, the quarry scene was something that I just decided halfway through to include because the quarry, it seemed like an important place. I mean, the, the idea of a child getting in a car like that and driving toward a, a I mean, that's. Even as a kid, you would be very aware at the age that he was that this is dangerous. This is frightening. I could I could lose my life doing this. So, I mean, the mentality he had to be in at that moment as a kid. But, so that's a powerful like place and probably a pretty powerful memory. Um, if I had ever done something like that, I'm sure I'd be haunted by the spot where I did it years later. Um, so I am glad I ultimately chose the quarry. <laughs> but I don't remember when I did it. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the last kind of, of Jim opening himself up to Spock in a way to say like, I don't know, to sort of let him in to his most private self. And um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those things in a canon scene that maybe the writers of the movie don't put that much thought into like Probably not. the kids' motivations. <laughs> I'm on a cliff, but the mentality you would have to be in to do some of this. And even the fighting that Jim gets into when he's later, like, dude, you could get yourself killed the way you're acting in this bar. And he just takes it. Uh, he was he uh, reboot Jim was is just absolutely fascinating as a character. Oh, such a mess and just yeah, no sense of self preservation. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's the best part when fan fiction writers can take something that really in canon doesn't. Maybe they've like half thought out, but it's like half baked. Mm-hmm. Like why would this kid? It's supposed to be according to the deleted scene. It's his father's. It's George's car. So like why would he destroy George's car like that? Um, and so, uh, if you don't mind uh, an- waiting another um, excerpt here, I would like to read just a couple paragraphs of... Well, I really don't remember this one well, so it'll be entertaining. Not not the sentences themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Jim has said, you know, to Spock, like, hey, you want to see something uh, cool or whatever? And he, dry- he Spock gets onto the back of the motorcycle and they drive out to this quarry. And Jim's um, kind of walking up to the edge of the cliff here. Be careful, Spock warned him. It was my dad's, 
Jim continued as though he hadn't spoken, staring down at the rectangular cuts in the sand-colored rock. The remains of the car had been cleared away long ago. A Corvette, antique. Of course, Dad was dead, and my asshole stepfather decided it was his. I used to clean it sometimes, polish it, or just climb in and sit. Wonder what he was really like. Wonder what my life would be like if he hadn't died. Nero took a parent from both of us. Did you ever think of that? I knew my father in that other life, but I have no memories of him in this one. Just his last name and his legacy. It followed me around my whole childhood. I told you that you shouldn't let your dad make your decisions for you, but I'm a fucking hypocrite. I let my dad run my life. That's why I drove that car over the cliff. You wished to die? No. It wasn't about death, and it wasn't about wrecking a car, and it wasn't for the adrenaline rush. I was trying to exercise my dad. I was mad at him for dying. I jumped out at the last minute. I jumped because he couldn't. So I thought that was like such a cool interpretation of that scene of giving like this strange kind of inner torment that Jim has around his father and sort of whatever twisted logic like a kid under that kind of stress could come up with to do something that crazy and uh, sharing with Spock was really sweet. And I had not thought of that, that Nero had taken a parent from both of them. I'm pretty sure I didn't realize that until I got to that point and I was writing that sequence. That was, I think, one of the real is I, I like a lot of people are very good with like their meta stuff and they, they, you know, they have all these thoughts as they're watching. But I very often don't like realize parallels between characters until I'm 45,000 words into a thick and it's like, wow, these people actually have a lot in common. So I do think that was something that I discovered along the way. And it made me very sad. Oh, it's so sad. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Jim Kirk is just like... um Maybe even more so than Dean. Like, he's just so... I mean, they're both aesthetically extremely beautiful men. They're, they're both kind of reckless. They don't have a lot of self-preservation. Um, but, yeah, maybe even more with Jim, like a, like a deep-seated, low estimation of his own worth. I'm not... I'm not quite sure. Like Dean, Dean had a lot of complex around his father, like trying to be his father. Yes. Um, but I think like Jim has something about his like he will he will do anything for his crew, and that I think comes from the Shatner in the original series too. But mm -hmm. yeah, something in that like ugh, the angst of reboot Jim is like crazy. It's so good. I mean, because he, he, he the original series Jim is not living under the memory of what George Kirk was. And that's got to be rough to be living in the shadow of, you know, your dad who is still hail. I mean, they, they have like Kelvin tubes. That's like a thing that's on the reboot ships. It's the escape tube. They're named for the ship. So, I mean, and he probably spent a childhood with like reporters in his face and people trying to talk to them. And, and so very, very different Jim. Um, and it, I, that was, I think, what was so fun with AOS uh, Trek fandom is that you can really play around with Jim Kirk in a way that maybe you can't in the original series because you can go so many different ways with like his personality and like the decisions he's going to make because his childhood was totally, totally different. Um, may or may not have included Tarsus, although some people have written Tarsus into uh, AOS. You, you was, did in this one, actually. Did I do it? You did. I did not. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm like, some people did this. Apparently, I did this. Um, and, I mean, so, hell, let's just pile on the trauma for this poor kid and make it worse. All the trauma. Um, 
I'll let you say hi to my to my cat here, Dana. <gasps> Hello, baby. <laughs> you hear the cat? No, you didn't hear a cat. You keep drinking your water, dog. She's probably gonna try and jump up on my keyboard and say, well, "Oh, cat. sorry." Here's other dog. I'm just being visited by all the schnauzers now. <laughs> well, let's um, let's kind of talk about your community involvement. I found somehow I found. I think I follow you because I was trying to follow all the Smallville authors that I could find. Okay. And then I think you had shared some Thick Whip posts on Twitter. And I was like, what's Thick Whip? I don't know if you call it Thick Whip or Thick W-I-P. Thick Whip. You can call it what you want. It's, the nice thing with them being written is that I never know how people pronounce anything. Oh, my God. I just saw your cat walk behind you. And for some reason, I thought it was an animal walking behind me. I don't know why. And I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, she kind of looks like a raccoon a little bit sometimes. She's so cute. But yes, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how people pronounce it. But you can pronounce it however you want. I say Thick Whip. <laughs> yes. So I found you on the Thick Whip Twitter and then saw there was a Discord and then joined the Discord. And um, that's just been really great for me because I found I was huge into the Cobra Kai fan, which is that Karate Kid reboot show. It's funny in a couple episodes. Yes, it's great. And the, the fandom is great. Um, and But I, I was in it um, in 2019 when it was still okay. on YouTube. And then it hit Netflix and got huge. And I think I was just kind of craving a smaller fandom. And I was getting into Smallville. And so I found a Smallville Discord, which is great. But it's like not – it's very um, – it's just not that active. Like there's a few of us who try to keep it going, but it's not what it was, of course. And Thick Whip is nice though because it's multi-fandom. So you don't – you get kind of the best of both worlds of like a big community concerned with writing, but you don't get kind of the fandom drama that can happen inevitably yeah. in any fandom. Yeah. So I love – it's like a big community of people. There's all kinds of channels. There's like if you're looking for a beta, you can post like, hey, I'm looking for a beta I don't know. You you obviously put a ton of work into this. Um, how long have you had Thick Whip and how did that come about? Thick Whip um, actually turns four in January. It was a um, – I was driving to work one day and I was I, – I wrote both original and fan fiction. And there are tons and tons of Twitter chats that are available for original fiction writers. There's like – you know, a day where you share a sentence, there's a day where you share like a snippet or, and there's like, I swear to God, there's one for every day of the week. And there's all these writer chats, but they're geared toward original fiction writers. And I'm sure you could join them as a fic writer, but let's be honest to the outside world, not involved in fandom. What we do is considered kind of weird. And I just never really felt comfortable jumping into a, a, an OFIC specific chat with my fan fiction. Um, and I, so I was driving to work and I'm like, Hey, we should just do our own. Um, I was floating between fandoms at the time. I was getting out of Supernatural. I was getting into Voltron. So I felt very disconnected from my friends. Uh, and I got to work that day and I was like, hey, if we did like a Twitter chat where we all just share something we're working on and we call it Thick Whip, would anybody be into it? And a whole bunch of people were like, yeah, we would try it. So we we did it. And I honestly thought it was going to be something we played for like a couple of months just till we got bored. But um, other fandoms started to join us. Um, so it was initially Supernatural, Voltron. Um, what other fandoms were there in the beginning? Free, Iwatobi Swim Club, my anime fandom. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, K-pop fandom showed up. And, like, Haikyuu fandom showed up and BNHA. And I was like, whoa, this is actually, like, some people are doing this. And we would do it, like, once a week. And so I made a dedicated Twitter account because it seemed a little tidier than running it off of my personal. Because I didn't want people feeling like they couldn't participate 
because of, you know, whatever fandom association I had. And we kept that going for a couple of years. And then um, during the pandemic, uh, we decided that instead of the, you know, every couple of weeks of doing this, uh, this thing where people shared a paragraph, I just rolled out our, our weekly word game that we used to play. It was a procrastination game we'd play on Discord where we'd toss a word out. Everybody would go find a sentence, case their sentence. We'd laugh our asses off at whoever had to pull like something from a sex scene. And then we'd <laughs> use a new word. And so we started doing it because people, I, I noticed during the pandemic, everybody was, uh, you know, stuck at home and forgot what day of the week it was. So we started doing on Wednesdays. It was a word game. And that actually grew the Twitter account. People started coming every week to play the game. And, um, uh, it, it has grown from there. And we had already started the Discord server, which I started, that just turned two. So it's half the age of the original event. But it, it really thought that was going to be like maybe 30, 50 of us just kind of hanging out. I I think everybody that I explained my my dream server to thought I was insane. Because I said, it's going to be multi-fandom and all ships, but we're not going to fight. And they were like, that's cute. Um, <laughs> I really think everybody thought it was going to catch on fire. Um, but it has not. We have a really cool community of people and everybody is, you know, there with the intent of being a creator first and treats everybody as humans. We're not uh, abstractions. We don't see each other as our ships or as our fandoms. We see them as whole people with pets and lives and, you know, struggles. And, you know, no matter what ship you write, if you're writing, you're a writer, you have the same struggles as every other writer. So now we have now we're a Discord community and a Twitter event. And then we have a whole bunch of events that we run. Because I can't just sit still. I have to be doing something that I can or I lose it. I, I was so impressed with you um, just seeing the fic with Twitter. But then we kind of connected because you knew that I was um, in the Clex fandom. And I had mentioned, oh, there's a Clex scene, which oh, is me? still happening. It's just very delayed. Um, I'm trying to get some uh, movement on that. But anyway, uh, we had a deadline in October. And I was like, oh, Muse, like, I love your stuff. I'm doing this scene. And you were like, there's a zine? I was like, yes. Ah, I wish I had told you about this. The deadline's in three days. And you're like, really? Do you think I could get in on this? And I was like, fuck, yeah, you can't. So I mentioned the mod. And the mod was like, oh, my God, Muse is interested. There, Chase is a big fan. And um, would, I wish I had known about that earlier. I would have boosted because I'm still connected to like some of the, and I don't know who would have jumped in, but like, I felt so bad that I wasn't like, I would have, I would have tried helping to boost that early on when they were. I know our little Clex server is just like kind of people who I think have found us, like we're sort of like the, either people have hung on this long or they're like, people like me that are new and we're like, where's the community? And it's like, you're 20 years too late. But but um, I had messaged a couple of people that like um, I sort of had connected with either through the podcast or whatever that I knew were old school writers. But, you know, it's hard. Like everybody's kind of in other fandoms or busy. Um, but anyway, Chase was super excited uh, when you expressed interest. But I was so impressed because I told you, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think he'd extend it. But um, technically, the the deadline's in three days. And you were like, um, let me go bake a cake and think about this. <laughs> Is that what I was doing my mom's birthday? That might have been my mom's birthday weekend because I was baking a cake. I don't like cake. So if I was baking a cake, it was for someone else. That's funny. And then you were like, yeah, let me go bake a cake. And then you came back. You're like, I have an idea. And I think like either the next day or the two days later, you're like, I have a draft. And I was like. Holy shit! This is it amazing. Very often, but once in a while, I can pull off a pull off a story in a weekend. That was so fun to get to go back to those two. That's always just like the it's like 
they're like a comfy shirt. You can just slip them back on. They're so easy to just kind of fall back into. I feel like they're going to be that for me. Like I, I can't say that exactly because I've only been in the Klex for a year or a year and a half or whatever now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just, yeah, they're so natural to me too. And yeah. um, anyway, so uh, we'll let everybody on the podcast know when the Klexine, uh comes out yes but that was kind of i feel like how we connected and Mm -hmm. um but then i yeah i was on thick whip and i just saw all these challenges so you did um rise of the dead fandoms was a challenge uh we recently it's still ongoing it's through the end of it was gonna end today but um i completely forgot that like thanksgiving's coming up and i people get so busy this time of the year and it's just again been such a second weird year 2020 was bizarre but this year has been equally as bizarre um, so we just extended it another week to give uh, people an extra chance to post. I mean, if this were a big bang, it would be one thing, and I would definitely have stuck to the deadline. But the nice thing with a more casual challenge is you can extend posting deadlines, and it doesn't really affect anything. Nobody's inconvenienced by it. And um, I'm really excited. It's a small event, but we have uh, you know people who are are creating things for fandoms that haven't had activity in a really long time or that they haven't touched in years. And I just love... I love, you know, just giving people the opportunity to go back and work on something that maybe they wouldn't have had the drive to work on if we hadn't had like a, a little reason to do it. Yeah, it's kind of the same. I feel like feeling about um, the fic that haunts you is. Yeah. yeah can you talk about that for a second? I, I read that and I was like, oh, my God, I need to. Because there's like a couple uh, whips or works in progress that I have that I just I think about like almost every day. And I'm like, oh, my God, I need to finish this. But I just haven't. We don't for some reason. Yeah, we, ha- we were having a conversation last because a lot of our events come out of conversations. Like we'll be having a conversation and like five of us will realize that we all have the same situation. And then we're like, maybe we should do something based on that. And the thing that haunts you came out of that. We were all having a conversation in another challenge room. I forget where we were. We were in one of the other challenge channels. And we started all mentioning that we all had like this one work that we really, that like wouldn't leave us alone, that we think about it all the time, but that for whatever reason, we weren't working on it. And for some of us, like in my case, it was not my ship. It was actually the opposite of my ship. And a lot of my friends hate the ship. And I was like, I can't possibly write this. And also, I don't like the ship. I mean, I come to like the ship. But I was like, I can't write my no TP. What the hell? But I had this idea. And it would not leave me alone. And a lot of people ended up expressing that they had similar stories where it was maybe it was an unhappy ending. So they didn't want to write it. Or um, it just felt kind of daunting or they felt alone. And so we created uh, the first round of of that. And um, while not a lot of people posted finished fan fiction to the archive, a lot of people made progress. Like one person wrote a novel that she's editing. Um, a lot of people made, you know, wrote several more chapters on their works or they, they planned out like elaborate works. Um, so it might not have to the public appeared to be a successful event in terms of the volume of what was released. But um, we have a lot of people who are coming back for the second round, which is self-paced. Um, the first round was a six-month challenge where every, we had a check-in every month, and then we were all going to share our stuff. But the new version is self-paced. So when you decide you want to work on something, you choose how long you want to uh, budget for it. So one month, six months, a year, you pick your goal. Maybe it's a rough draft. Maybe it's to finish a chapter. And then there's a monthly automated check-in that you can respond to, and you can keep your own progress log. And it doesn't require... Um, you don't have to post. You can use it for original fiction. You never have to show what you do to anybody. So if you want to write 
your no TP and then hide it on your computer, you can. Um, and people will cheer for you and be very happy for you on the server. Um, and, and that was actually how I ended up writing uh, a love story to my no TP, which then became not, no longer my no TP because there were people who were cheering me on as I did it. And it was very exciting. <laughs> Does that, what fandom was that one for? The no- that is the Voltron fandom. I am a I am a sheath shipper. I've been into sheaths since the pilot. Um, it was one of those ships that I latched onto immediately. It was just like Klex. I saw them, and my brain was like, I love this. Um, and and uh, I wrote Clance for the fic that haunts you. It was a post finale, accepting the finale as it was story. The ship I loved did not get together, uh, and it was people finding solace in maybe what hadn't been your first choice relationship it turned out to be a really good relationship for you so it was very cathartic it was the last in a series of fixits that i had written for myself after the terrible finale in 2018 which i'm still recovering from um but yeah no that was it that was such a fun event and it was just neat to see people kind of tackle stuff that they normally wouldn't and i'm excited that we have the second version coming up and people are signing up for it. It's, it is now a locked, it always actually has been, it's a lockdown discord only event because it's a little too hard to do that one in public. Um, it's really important. I think to have that community, that really small intimate community who can talk with you about it yeah. and supportive of you, even if they have no idea what you're working on, they can at least, you know, offer you some support or, um, some comfort if you're having a bad day and you can't get that on Twitter. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, do you? It seems like you do a lot of community organizing with fandom and fan fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Is that kind of new for you, or have you always been like putting on events and being involved? I was moderate. I was mildly involved in fandom organizing my first stint in fandom through uh, Smallville. I was the archivist back before we had a really good central archive because this is back before AO3. It was not uncommon that challenge works were actually hosted on private websites. So unlike today, where you just make an AO3 collection, we didn't have that. So you actually had to have someone who was uh, proficient in HTML, and that was me, who would actually write the, because uh, we used Notepad back then, we did not have uh, commonly commonly used WYSIWYG editors. So you would have an archivist who literally built the HTML pages out for the uh, archive for whatever the event round was, and then actually created pages for each of the individual works. Uh, and so it was a lot of hours of work that were put into it. So I served as an archivist for two rounds of the CLFF challenge. Um, I believe the original version name of that was actually the Clark Lex Fuckfest, but it was quickly <laughs> renamed into the Clark Lex. It was just Clex Fest by the end. Yeah. And it became no longer like a porn centric event. And I was involved in, in, I think, round seven and eight. I served as the archivist. And I did actually find... Um, some of the works from that on AO3 and have recreated the collections. And I am trying to get in touch with the original organizers for that event to get permission to work with AO3 to import from archive.org, where some of them are still preserved, the unpreserved stories from the early, early rounds. But nobody's getting back to me. So if you're uh, listening to this and you are from CLFF, the original Fest, and you will give me permission to work with AO3, I really want to do that. Um, because there are a lot of works that never came over and are not preserved. And there were hundreds of works that came out of that, um, out of that challenge. So that was kind of my first um, taste of it. I didn't do anything on the organizing side. And then when I came back to fandom, my friend Emily was like, Hey, I'm thinking of running a Trek big bang and I'm looking for a co-mod. Does anyone want to help? And I was like, that sounds fun. And that was the Tehila bang, which I still run. We were in our sixth round. 
And I was like, this is awesome. This is so much fun. And I just kept running them because it was very similar to some stuff I do for work. I saw things in the way that they were being run that I didn't like. Um, they were always run on LiveJournal, which was just really inefficient when almost everybody had moved to Tumblr. So I started experimenting with like hybrid events and then just Tumblr events. And I'm always looking for like new technology that we can use to run them. It's just so much fun. I utterly love event running and planning and the event branding. And the cool thing with the FICWIP events is that we run them once and then kind of retire them and then come up with a new concept. So that there's, I don't know that we'll run dead, fan, dead fandoms again, um, but it was like fun to run it once. And next year we're going to do, like somebody came up with an idea for a new challenge this morning. So we'll probably do that one next. <laughs> it's cool. You can get away with it. Well, it's cool to have um, people like you involved in fandom that enjoy doing it because I think so many people are shy or they don't know how to do it, but they want a lively community. So you need those kind of like, people who are good at like we weaving social connections i don't know it's just great so thank you for putting on all these fests it's awesome i'm happy if people enjoy them it's a blast um okay i normally do like a short 10 question and i realize i didn't um put one together so i'm going to kind of do it um on the fly if that's okay i'll be answering on the fly Perfect. So we'll, we'll both be kind of in the same boat. Um, I, I think any fandom, do you have like a short list of like one or two or three authors that you will just like read anything that they post that you would recommend to our listeners? This is the point where I tell you that I don't actually read much fan fiction. Um, I used to, um, but I, I got to a point where it was about all I read for two years. And what happened is that I started to uh, pick up some bad writing habits by reading only fic because fic unfortunately tends to be a little homogenous in terms of style. So um, I actually read like book books and a lot of manga. I read manga like it's going up. Yeah. Well, what what are you reading right now then? Or what would you recommend to people that you're reading? Um, I love uh, if you're just looking for like uh, affordable entry point into manga, Shonen Jump is $1.99 a month and you can read a lot of their really big titles like Haikyuu, um, which is the volleyball, the volleyball kids. Um, they have Tokyo Ghoul, which is finished, and that's completely on there. So you can read it for two bucks instead of paying. Uh, and I read a lot of the BL genre. There is a, a, a service called Futakia, which opened up, I think, two years ago. They're about six ninety nine a month for all you can read uh, BL manga. They have some good titles. I do pause that subscription because when you're waiting for something to come out, it may not be coming out for a couple of months, and then you don't have anything to read. But that's fully licensed, legal. Uh, paid uh, BL manga, and some of them are, you know, and some of them are spectacular and and just wonderful. My favorite uh, manga author is she's actually not translated legally into English, so but I do own her books. I bought them. But of the translated people, Scarlet Barrico is is a lot of fun. That's cool. And what does BL mean? Oh, that's the boys' love genre. Ah, lovely. Don't we all love that? Um, let's see. What about, I don't know if there's anything off the top of your head or if you would need to go onto your AO3 bookmarks, but just any like of your favorite classic when you were reading fan fiction. Do you have any like favorites of all time that are on your bookmark list? Favorites of all, you know what? It, my favorites are, would vary when I get in and out of fandom. Um, the one that always stood out and I haven't read it in years was The Lazarus Gap by Dolomir. It was just one of my mm -hmm. favorite novel fics. Um, 
Lex goes missing and ends up working in, I believe, a homeless shelter. And I think he's I want to say that he loses his ability to walk and Clark finds him and it gives them like a chance to start over um, with what I forget exactly where that was said. But that one is one that I, I always loved that story. Um, and my friend Gary Owen wrote a ton, a ton of, of Smallville. And I always, always read uh, her stuff. Um, so I would say those those two are the ones that kind of jump out as as people who I just I always I always loved seeing stuff from them. Yeah, I heard that author named Gary Owen, and I had wondered because I'm not sure if they had a Ao3 account or if I'd seen them just on Live Journal or just like heard uh, or seen on All Reckless. So I'll try and find if they have a profile somewhere. I um, or she ever did come over to Ao3. We were Live Journal friends. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I'll see if I can find any Gary Owen fic, but I do remember Lazarus Gap, and I love I love Lazarus Gap. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna shout out to a dear friend from Harry Potter. We are still friends to this day. My friend Vera. She goes by Dragon Muse, and I really will read anything she does. She is actually a pro writer as well, and she writes like every fandom. But she has such a just oh, beautiful way with words, and I am very happy to say I've known her for probably 20 years. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> Um, let's, have you ever heard of the game, um, Mary Fuck Kill? Yes. Yes. Okay. So playing that, yes. or if it's too hard, sometimes my sister and I do, um, Mary, uh, kiss or smooch and dismiss politely where you can't, um, find herself to kill a character. Fair, fair, fair. Um, well, I'll kill someone. It's fine. <laughs> we're not, we're okay. not really killing them. It's just a game. Let's do from Smallville, obviously. Let's do Clark, Lex, and um, we could do Lana or Lois. Who do you like better, Lana or Lois? I don't really have a preference of the two of them. I'll kill either one of them. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. MMK with uh, Clark, Lex, and Lois. We're gonna we're gonna sleep with Clark. We're gonna marry Lex, and we're gonna kill either Lois or Lana. Sorry, girls. Yeah, I think I would just, I just like Lex. It's a, he's like the best character. You just have to like love Clark. So sweet, the best. But you know, nuts. I think to live with him, but he'd be fun to like hang out with a little bit. I don't think I could marry Clark. Yes. Yeah, he he would probably be the most dedicated husband ever, but in a way that maybe is almost annoying. I'm not sure. A little too clingy for me. I think I don't. I like <laughs> yeah. it, but he's great with Lex. I'm glad for them. Isn't it great that they're married and they have a kid? <laughs> Oh, my God. So wonderful. (laughs) Um, Let's jump to Supernatural and do Dean, Cass, and Sam. Marrying Sam, hands down. Um, You know what? I'm going to give – I'm so sorry, Cass. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to sleep with Dean. (laughs) Don't tell Sam. You got to. You got to sleep with Dean. What are you going to do? He's so cute. I'm going to do that first. Get that out of the way. Then we get married, and I'm really, really very sorry about Castiel. Yes, we love Cass, but you know what? He's an angel. He'll He's he'll fine. come back and reincarnate. He'll be fine. <laughs> and Dean, I I agree because Dean is so beautiful, and he's probably extremely uh, adept in the romance department. So yeah, um, as in a one night thing. I think he would have too many emotional problems probably to function in a relationship. So I don't. He reminds me of me in too many ways. It would be like I feel like we would hit butt heads a little bit. But Sammy has some qualities that remind me of my little sister, and we balance each other very well. So I feel like mm. Sam and I would long term, and he likes dogs, and I have. He dogs. does. 
Um, and let's jump over to Star Trek and do Jim, Spock, and Bones. Oh. I know. I feel like you marry Bones. He would be so such a gentleman. Love, I think you got to marry Bones. God, am I going to kill Jim Kirk? We may need to kill Jim and sleep with Spock. I feel like you have to. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Him, but I'd much rather sleep with Spock over him. I would marry Spock, but I just feel like that might be a little too much like being with myself because I can be a little too strict. So I think Bones would just be a good long-term. Yes. And Carl Urban McCoy is like so gruff, but also adorable. He's amazing. And Spog, it might be a little intense because he might do the mind meld, you know, during during sex, but it might also be amazing. amazing. Yeah. So we'll try it once. We'll see how it goes. Sorry, Jim. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, What is your favorite fic that you've written somewhat recently that people should read? Uh, I will never tell anyone to read them. Don't read them. Don't read any of them. (laughs) Favorite one recently? Um, Honestly, I really did like Flowers by the Roadside. That was my Clance fic. It's so weird that I have a Clance fic under my belt. Um, I was actually, I was very pleased with how that one came out. Uh, I thought I went into that thinking it was going to be like this really angry, angsty story. And it was so soft and nice. Uh, and it it ended up being so much sweeter than I thought it was going to be. So I'm I'm very happy with that one. I'm just happy that I stopped. I got it out of my head because it sat for two years, just like pinging me with this idea. So sure, we'll say that one. There's going to be another one I think of in a minute that was better than that, but I can't think of one. <laughs> I haven't been posting much lately. Yeah, that's all right. I love that the sometimes uh, unexpected characters or unexpected pairings that you didn't know that you were maybe drawn to or charmed by, like just the act of investing your time and self into them, like can mm-hmm. be really surprising. So, okay, I think I think that's it. Okay. Um, was there anything that you wanted to say that you that we didn't cover or? The only thing I wanted to mention is I listened to your podcast from last week, and I am so ashamed that I never considered the pairing of Andy and Sid from Toy Story. Mm. <laughs> you have to read that Holly Hark thing. I'm like, I got to read that now. I was just down in Florida with my sister. Like, we were walking through Toy Story Land at Disney Studios, and, like, I wish I had had that in my brain at the time because I can't unsee it now. I know it's so messed up because you're like, oh, it's a cartoon. And but when you grow up, it's like such a cool experience to go back to those childhood things and look at them as an adult and consider mm-hmm. how those characters would be as, as an adult. And it's just like the perfect like, I don't know, it's like an MM ship. There's like a unfortunate bad boy that would have also, by the way, had an extremely traumatic experience with his like toys coming to life. But like parents aren't around. He's like obviously self-destructive. And then you have like nice sweet little Andy, but also who doesn't have a father around. You never see his father. So in this fic, uh, Andy's dad was like outdoor. He never met him. So there's like all this like kind of space that you can imply angst or like thing. I don't know. It's just really well done. So I, I, just, I think that's the thing I love most with with fandom and fan fiction is like people who will dig into something like. you know, a ship from Toy Story that you would never like think of. But that's I mean, as soon as I heard you guys talking about that, I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I cannot I cannot unsee this. And like, I wanted to know more about it. It was just 
Fandom's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. I love that you can you can almost pick up any piece of media and find someone that's done something surprising and cool and uh, something you didn't expect. And mm-hmm. um, it's the best. It's the best. I love it. I, I love that it's a, a whole just global community of people who are creating out of love of the stuff that they you know, read or watch or, you know, people outside of fandom don't really understand it. And they always like to say, well, but don't you want to be writing for money? Don't you want to be doing this for profit? And it's like, it's hard to explain the gift economy to them and, and the real joy you get out of of just creating something for the sake of creating it and giving it to two people. I'm a little sorry to, and I know people have mixed feelings on this, but I'm, I'm a little sorry to see that fandom is monetizing as much as it is because I feel like it does take away from that, that gift community, which is so, so important to me, but I don't think we will ever lose that at our core. Um, so I hold on to that. <laughs> yeah, man, I agree. And it's, you're right. It is hard to explain to people like what fandom is and, and how joyful it can be to those of us who like get it and enjoy it. And um, man, is that what you would say that you love most about fandom is, um, I don't know, that gift economy kind of aspect to it? And there are there are many things I love about it. I, I love the community. I mean, I love having like my my family always thought I was being you know unsafe having friends around the world and my sister now has actually made really good friends on twitter and she apologizes to me now she's like i'm so sorry i didn't realize like we just literally met several of her twitter friends last week um uh, but i think having that that global community of of writers is very important to me just running into other creatives but also just people who want to talk about your show with you just as much as you'd like to and they don't think you're weird um, that's incredible. But yeah, no, the gift economy, I think is just one of the loveliest things. I think one of the things I love the most about fandom is that it breaks walls down that exist within, like, if you want to write a book and publish it, you have all kinds of barriers that stand in the way of you writing that book and it getting into the world. And that doesn't exist in fandom. Anybody, no matter how much experience they have with writing or with art can create something and put it into that fandom community and it can find people who are going to appreciate it no matter how much experience you have or how much education you've had, or if you've got, you know, the, the best programs, everybody can get an AO3 account except for poor China. Oh my God. I feel I was sick when they banned that. Um, but anybody can sign up for this. Anybody can publish, anybody can join a bang. Um, anybody can jump on Twitter and share things in a hashtag. And I, I love that. I love that it gives people an opportunity to, you know, I, I love nothing more than when I get first time writers or first time bang participants, you know, in a challenge and I get to you know, walk them through, you know, all the way to maybe publishing their first long fic. That's incredible. That's just it's just awesome. And it doesn't exist like in you know the real world. I go to work and I get paid for that. And thanks. That's great. But I don't get that like feeling of joy and like being part of somebody's success the way that you do in fandom. Fandom is just unlike anything else. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, uh, that's a wonderful note to, I think, end our interview on. And um, if you're right, I'll link maybe the FICWIP Twitter. And if you're okay with the FICWIP Discord, is that open to just anybody? Right now, but we do have a, I've got a card that you can link to that has information on how people can request to join. We use totally public, but unfortunately, um, some people found us through another means and didn't understand our core values. And we had some antis try to join those circles. <sighs> not have because uh, our goal is to always to protect the creators first and uh, can't let the antis in. I'm sorry. 
you're entitled to your opinion, kids, but you're not welcome on, not welcome in the space. <laughs> Absolutely. So linking to the card would be a good way just so people can read through. Thickwhip.card.co or twitter.com slash thickwhip. Okay, awesome. And um, where can people find you at? I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, I actually did go back to the hell site. So I am on Tumblr again. Um, uh, I am I am muse away on absolutely every site everywhere except for Twitter where I cannot get my handle. And then you have to throw the word thick after it. So on Twitter, it's muse away thick. Usually I just show up to complain about writing or <laughs> I'm writing about. Um, and Tumblr, I just reblog pretty things and photos. <laughs> Yes, that's a that's the place to do it, really. So lots of Jens Jensen uh lately on my timeline. And, and Tumblr, actually, it's funny. It's it's quite different after the when they got rid of not safe for work. It kind of calmed down over there. It's a little quieter. So um, all of the ick seemed to have moved over to Twitter, and Tumblr's kind of nice again. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for talking fanfic with me today. And um, so much fun. We'll have to maybe have you come back. And I know you're into a lot of anime and manga fandoms that I've never heard of. What? Oh, I will talk about. And I can talk about fandom all day. Well, we'll have you back on and talking about um, some of that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. 